Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, what's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Hey man, you want an extra 60 grand? We hooked Christopher up in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. He left us a five-star review for SaveWithConrad.com and had this to say, I listen to every podcast Conrad and his team put out. I've heard the ad numerous times and decided to give it a try. What is there to lose? I did lose something. Nearly 60K. I saved nearly $60,000 over the course of my loan. It was simple and a great experience. Thanks, Conrad, and a surprise staff member. Hmm. Who is that mystery man? $60,000. We made this fast and easy for Christopher. And it's easy to get a quick quote and see how much you can save for free. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. So what are you waiting for? We routinely help our podcast listeners save sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. Let's start saving money right now at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender, SaveWithConrad.com. I love you to the moon and back. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who does it remind you of? What do you think mom would say if you said that to her? How about your wife? That might melt a little, right? Make sure she remembers how much she is loved every day with Steven Singer's exclusive moon and back diamond necklace for just $98. It features a moon and a heart with a secret message of love. I love you to the moon and back. Imagine the look on her face when she reads that hidden message on the back of the necklace it's the perfect warm and fuzzy gift for your mom or the mother of your children this Mother's Day. Great jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Buy real diamonds from a real jeweler you can trust. Take my advice and head to Steven Singer Jewelers. It's easy. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and check out Steven's beautiful selection of Mother's Day gifts all at the perfect price with fast and free shipping. Steven's real experts are available to help online by phone or in his showroom at the other corner of eighth and Walnut in Philly. That's I hate Steven singer.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Good, Conrad. It's good to be home. I finally got home after WrestleMania week and weekend, and then I had a chance to visit with you and the team in Huntsville, and finally back home, getting my feet underneath me and getting ready to take off back to Tampa on Monday. Oh, joy. Wait, so like as people are listening to this, you're back headed to Tampa? 
Yeah, this drops, you know, early Monday morning. Of course, I'll be taking off uh, Monday evening, wow. spending the night in Billings so I can catch a 6 a.m. And I'm in Tampa on Tuesday and Wednesday and back home Thursday. Look at you, Jet Setter. This is like uh, the old school Eric Bischoff travel pre-pandemic. Yeah, this is like the old school Bischoff needs his ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> so this will be three trips to Tampa in three weeks? Yeah. Wow. You know, you could just stay with your buddy down there. You have friends down there. A really good one. In fact. Yeah. I have friends and and family. Oh yeah. I forgot Garrett's down there. Yeah. And and I kind of feel silly. I I guess I should probably be looking at a home down there eventually (laughs) because this is getting a little bit crazy. Well, you know, that's what you're going to start saying about a week after the show we're covering today. Slambury 96 is a show that. I've wanted to cover for a long time. And I know if you remember this card, you're probably thinking, why would that be? Because this happened on May 19th, 1996, eight days later, the world changes. Fair to say. It's funny. You said that the words were forming in my mouth as you were leading into that. And I was going to say the exact same thing. What a difference a week makes. It's, it's pretty amazing. So what we're alluding to is the 25th anniversary of Scott Hall coming down the, uh, the stands, I guess, for lack of a better word, coming right into the ring and that denim gear. And he cut that infamous promo that we know. Oh, so well, but this is really like the last WCW pay-per-view without any NWO influence. If you will, of course, 96 is the 25 year anniversary of the formation of the NWO. And yes, we're going to lean heavily into that for the rest of the year, but this is a fascinating pay-per-view because it feels like the end of an era. And it's not like Scott Hall came down those steps and immediately everything on the whole show changed, but the tone and tenor, the mood, the momentum, a lot of things are going to change just a week later. Right, Eric. It, it, it really did. It, it, it was a, comp- a real shift in the way we were going to be presenting wrestling in the future. And I think it still exists to this day in many respects. It was a seismic shift in the entire approach to the format of, of Nitro, to the, to the format of our subsequent pay-per-views, um, a complete shift in presenting characters and story, not, not completely, not a hundred percent across the boards as we've talked about many times, but the core elements of what made nitro work and the core elements of what WCW was going to become from the, for the next really two and a half years from this point was going to take a, a dramatic shift in, in just a little over a week from this point. Let's set the stage here. Slambury 96 went down on May 19th from the Riverside Centroplex in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We're going to draw 7,791 fans. 6,308 of those are paying $104,760. $104,000 gate. Now at the time, I'm sure WCW was all high fives. Hey, we broke six figures, but context is king. That's what we like to say here on the show. Well, a year later, a hundred thousand dollar gate. And everybody would be like, what did we do wrong? What happened? It's quick. It's, it's amazing how quickly you can become accustomed to success. Fair to say. Gosh, well, it, it, that's so true in life, you know, certainly true here and, and apropos 
within the context of this conversation for sure, but it's so true in life, man. And you're right. You know, there was a point in time when just probably two years before this, three years before this, for sure, um, where the $100,000 gate was that magic, you know, live event unicorn. You know, we knew it could happen. We, we, we heard rumor <laughs> of $100,000 gates, but we had never experienced one in WCW prior to my arriving there during the time that I was there as an announcer. And certainly while I was there early on as an executive, those $100,000 gates were so elusive. And you're right. You know, this is almost uh, not quite a year at this point uh, since Nitro had launched and we were building momentum and we were getting close and $100,000 gates were still cause for, you know, a lot of celebration internally because, again, they were just something that we had never experienced as a company before. The show is going to do a 0.44 buy rate, which is 108,000 buys, uh, which uh, estimated $1.21 million in company revenue. Let's break down the way pay-per-view dollars worked back then. I've always heard it was roughly 50% and you got it three to six months later. Is that right? Well, it started out being, when I took over WCW, our revenue split with our pay-per-view providers was a 60-40 split. The pay-per-view providers receiving the 60%, WCW receiving the 40% because we had no leverage. We weren't a hot property. We had nothing to negotiate with. We were fortunate and to be on, you know, a pay-per-view schedule and to get the promotion that came along with it. Because as we've talked about in the past, so much of the promotion for our pay-per-views didn't come from our internal marketing. That was something that we did, you know, with our shows themselves. But there was very little outside ad buys and promotion for our pay-per-views because the pay-per-view companies, DirecTV and Dish and whoever else was covering pay-per-view at the time, they were the ones that were marketing the pay-per-views to the local providers and in the local communities. Uh, but because we weren't a hot property, eh, we, we didn't get the sweetest deal, but it wasn't long before we renegotiated, uh, those splits and we eventually got into a 50, 50 split. But I think even here, we were probably still at a 60, 40 and, you know, that's, you know, just to make the math simple, you know, you, you do a, a, a $20 ad buy and, you know, WCW was, or excuse me, a, a $40, uh, pay-per-view buy yeah and and wcw was on the you know the short end of that stick so it it took a lot to make up 1.2 million dollars in revenue i also want to mention 108,000 buys this is uh before wcw was hot in the nwo era these days of course it's a different world a different model aew usually hovers around that hundred thousand mark for pay-per-views their most recent one with the uh exploding barbed wire match did over 150,000 buys, but still it's not, it is, it is definitely a different universe pay-per-view wise. And, and you know what? Let's talk about that because some news happened this last week that I think maybe went under the radar, but I know we have the smartest listener base in all of wrestling podcasting. So we're going to get way deep in the weeds here on the business of pay-per-view for just a minute, because I think you'll be fascinated by this. I don't think you and I have talked about it in long form. But Triller, the company who helped put together and market the Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. fight, and even this past weekend, uh, the uh, Jake Paul Ben Askren pay-per-view, and supposedly they've got a few others lined up. Those shows did monster buys on pay-per-view. 
And a, a big portion of that was through an app that you and I are both very familiar with the fight app F I T E. And they had a similar relationship to these pay-per-view vendors, if you will, from a generation prior where they did a split. Now the world has changed. You no longer have to go down to your, your cable company and get a little apparatus to put on the back of your TV. Now you can just click a button on your phone and boom, it's done. And once Apple or whoever you use for that sort of thing takes their cut, uh, then fight would collect all the money. And then, uh, you know, 30 days later or whatever, they would cut a check to whoever actually put on the event, the promoters themselves. But now with Triller purchasing fight this last week, it feels as if they did that for the sole reason we no longer have to give up so much of that split. We can keep all of the money that is uh, crazy, like a Fox move, but I like it. What say you, Eric? I, I like it too. And you know, you, you, the question you asked just a second ago, you know, yeah, we, we, we talked about the split, but you said we got paid within three to six months. That was another big challenge for WCW because the, the vast majority mm-hmm. of our revenue came from pay-per-view, mm. you know, licensing was virtually, well, I won't say non-existent, but for all intents and purposes, it was, um, there was not a lot of licensing. There was very little merchandising, successful merchandising at this point. It was an afterthought. Um, pay-per-view was really our primary, you know, revenue generator and the, the, the revenue from that, we would get paid, for example, in, in, in May of 1996, we probably would receive, of whatever was due us within six months, the remaining 60% would trickle in for sometimes another six months, sometimes even longer, because at that point, you know, this technology was what it was or wasn't what it wasn't. And you had to wait for the local cable companies. And some of those local cable companies are mom and pop operations, you know, with very little staff, very little infrastructure. They had to collect from their local subscribers. Then it had to be processed through the cable company, the local cable company's accounting system. And then it would eventually, you know, it would go to DirecTV or whoever the core provider was, and they would get their splits. And then eventually the money would would make its way to Atlanta, to WCW. And oftentimes that would take, like I said, over a year wow. for 100% of that revenue to come in, where, you know, with technology today and the different pay-per-view platforms and streaming and technology and apps and all that great stuff, you're probably looking at a 30-day turnaround. I'm guessing. I don't know. I'm not in the business. I haven't dealt with them. But something tells me that not only are you not paying the middlemen, but you're getting the money due you much, much faster. And, you know, nobody knows business better than you do, Conrad. From a cash flow perspective, that makes your world a much better place to live when that money's coming in within 30 or 45 days as opposed to 12, sometimes 16 to 18 months. So it's a big, as they like to say in the world of business, it is a paradigm shift for sure. All right. By now, you know that Eric Bischoff loves his dog, Nikki. We see evidence of that all over his Instagram. And I know you love your dog too, but we might be able to do a little better for our dogs than we have been. I'm excited to tell you about solid gold. Did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut? or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies. 
Solid Gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts the immune system and overall wellness of pets. And I'll be honest, I didn't really understand all of that until I realized my dogs have allergies. And now that I know that, dude, it is solid gold through and through. These are much happier dogs. I can personally attest for that. Solid Gold was the first holistic pet food company in America, started back in 74 by Sissy McGill, who's a pioneer and a trailblazer. Because back then, man, pet food was dominated by dudes. She came in and said, I'm breaking up that racket, baby. I'm a disruptor, and I'm going to create a natural pet food before it was cool. That's exactly what she did. Her inspiration was that European Great Danes live longer than American Great Danes. What's up with that? Well, it turns out that she was able to create something pretty special. Hundenflocken, which is dog flakes in German. They've now provided high-quality nutrition and digestive health for over 20 generations of dogs. Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high-quality food is the best way to impact our pets' mind, body, and spirit. Now, for over 45 years, Solid Gold has revolutionized the holistic pet food category. They have a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including healthy whole grain and grain-free options, wet food, supplements like sea meal, and 100% human-grade bone broth for dogs. Solid Gold foods are different because they cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods, balance with living probiotics, and fuel with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, supporting gut health and nourishing your pet inside and out. Right now, to save 30% on Solid Gold products, just go to solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. That's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks to save 30% on select Solid Gold products. Remember, solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. I, I can attest to that from a fight standpoint. It's a net 30 type deal. Uh, so if you've ever ran a business and you have an invoice, a lot of those vendor to vendor type invoices will run on what's called a net 30. So you have 30 days from the day that invoice is issued to go ahead and pay it. And that was usually the cycle with fight. So within 30 days you would get paid, but supposedly that, that Mike Tyson fight was a huge success. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of buys that went through fight. And so was Logan Paul's fight, uh, back in what November of 2019, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of orders came through fight because fight is unlike direct TV or Comcast or somebody who just has mostly domestic reach. This was an international opportunity. So you could use the fight app and order the fight in Zimbabwe or Australia or Ireland or England or Oklahoma. So I'm fascinated by the business of the pay-per-view business and that it's still a thing. And it feels like even though, you know, the WWE has effectively killed wrestling pay-per-views, here's AEW and their most recent show set a record for them. And now here are these exhibition fights, if you will, which by the way, when we have those in the wrestling space, where it's an outside entertainer coming into wrestling, it feels like a lot of fans want to regurgitate it and say, "Ugh," and they just gag on it. Meanwhile, the real world is fascinated by this. We had a YouTube star do really strong on on pay-per-view in a boxing match against an MMA guy. So neither guy's really a boxer, but a whole lot of people paid attention. What do you make of that, Eric? 
Curiosity, curiosity and mainstream audience. You know, you look at Logan Paul and, you know, he was recently, you know, he was at WrestleMania. Yeah. He was a guy with like 22 million followers. Yeah. You know, he's a massive, you know, social media presence, YouTube presence. And that 22 million, you know, fan universe of Logan Paul was, you know, they're interested in seeing what he's doing. And I think the same thing happens with some of these, you know, what otherwise may be kind of what I would consider to be kind of a gimmick fight, you know, or a gimmick match, if you will. Um, Those things have a tremendous amount of a curiosity draw. And that's where they're making money. You know, you think about it for a minute. You know, I saw a document not long ago, and I think it was an older document, but it was a it was a WWE statement where they said that uh, they've got a, a fan base of over 25 million fans worldwide. Well, Logan Paul's got 22 million that are active and wow. loyal. So it's really an interesting d- dynamic when you kind of pull yourself out of the day to day, you know, wrestling universe or wrestling world, if you will, and kind of look at how entertainment as a whole is adapting and taking advantage of the the technology that's out there today. And they're booking popular pop culture personalities, popular pop culture personalities. Say that fast at (laughs) six o'clock in the morning. I dare you, brother. I've only had two cups of coffee. I could have just said another stupid thing. That's going to end up on a t-shirt that I'll never (laughs) down. (laughs) Google the internet, bitch. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's, it's really, really fascinating, you know, and I mean, maybe what we'll see, maybe a trend, you know, you look at AEW, they're, you know, using Mike Tyson a lot, Yeah. you know, we just, as we just talked about, you know, WrestleMania, you know, Logan Paul, uh, Bad Bunny, what a phenomenal impact Bad Bunny had. And I wouldn't be surprised because of what you just pointed out, the success that a lot of these pay-per-view companies are having now or these promotions are having using this new technology are, are generating hundreds of you know, hundreds of thousands of buys and probably hundreds of millions of dollars. Don't be surprised if we don't start seeing a lot more social media influencer kind of stunts, you know, gone are the days where you're going to take somebody who's a movie star or a television star. Not that it won't continue to happen from time to time, but I think because it's just the way the world is shifting and pop culture has evolved. Don't be surprised if we start seeing more and more and more, you know, huge social media influencers and people that you would never expect to get involved in, in professional wrestling, stepping into the arena because they're a bigger draw. They're going to make more money. Go back to Bad Bunny again. Here's a guy, some wrestling experts thought nobody even knew who he was. Yeah. Because, you know, that guy didn't know who he was. Right. You know, but he writes about wrestling and he's an expert and he knows everything there is to know. And he was, you know, dumping all over Bad Bunny because he didn't know who Bad Bunny was. Wow. (laughs) I mean, you know, reality proved, you know, that perspective very, very wrong. And Bad Bunny comes, you know, he uses his WrestleMania, Bad Bunny uses his WrestleMania performance, which was a hell of a performance, by the way, and and leverages that to sell out his tour. And I don't know how fast he sold it out, but I knew he shut down Ticketmaster not long after he went on sale. Not bad for a guy that nobody knows, right? (laughs) It's pretty remarkable to think about how the whole pay-per-view business is changing, but I'm going to go the other way, Eric. I think this could be a fad. I think that the whole exhibition thing is a curiosity right now, but I think you can only go back to the well so many times 
before you just sort of throw your hands up. And I know we talked offline beforehand. You did not watch the, uh, the, the Jake Paul fight, but you did watch the Mike Tyson fight. And you said about halfway through, you decided you got my money once I'm never doing this again. It's a little different situation. You're right. You're right. When it comes to, you know, if, and look, that was Tyson's first foray into this world. Yeah. Um, and you learn, you, you go back you look at what you did, right. You look at what you did wrong and you tweak it and you evolve. Nobody's going to come out of the shoot. Perfect. On, on your first night out or your second or your third or your 10th, it takes a while to kind of dial in the formula and, 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 and realize what works, what doesn't work. But I want to, I want to take it just another, a, a little deeper into the weeds. I think with what we saw with bad bunny in particular, I mean, just step back from, you know, what he did in the match, which was phenomenal. Everybody agrees with that. Forget about that for a second. Just think about it from a business and a marketing and a promotional strategy. If you're a young talent and you don't mind getting physical, like Jake Paul, like Logan Paul, like Bad Bunny, and there there will be, there are others and there will be even more. Once those individuals in their teams realize that, hey, if I leverage my social media following into an opportunity to have a great performance like Bad Bunny did. I think Bad Bunny kind of, I can't believe I'm talking about a guy by the name of Bad Bunny, but I am. <laughs> I think what he did in the way he took advantage of that opportunity at WrestleMania and leveraged that opportunity to, to increase his fan base and reach an audience that he might not have otherwise reached and do it so successfully, that is a model that other people will try to follow there will be more and more people that are going to be going, Hey, Bruce Pritchard, Vince McMahon over here. I've got 18 million followers. I've got 20, I've got 15, I've got whatever the number is. And I'll really commit like bad buddy did. Cause bad buddy kind of made, he, he created the template for celebrity non-wrestling performers to step into that world and do it successfully. Not just a stunt cast, not just showing up, you know, standing in the ring corner, waving on, maybe grabbing somebody's leg and getting kind of, you know, briefly involved in a match. I'm talking about celebrities and influences. And I think there's a difference in some respects, at least in my mind, because I'm old and shit. But when, when you find yeah, my phones are going off, this one's quacking like a fucking duck. This one sounds like a doorbell. I'm going crazy. It's 15 in the morning. I'm losing my freaking mind here. I should have turned off my phones, but no, I'm walking and talking in my freaking sleep here. Like some kind of an amateur jackass that's never done a podcast before for crying out loud. But I think bad buddy created a template and a formula that other people are going to use and WWE and probably AEW are going to learn how to exploit in the best way possible. So I, I, I don't think it's a fad. I think you're going to see more and more of it. I'm wondering now, did we just get our first foray into red ass, Eric? Uh, of course, everybody who listens to this show is familiar with red ass JR, but red ass, Eric fussing at phones in the morning that could get over. I'm crabby as fuck unless I've had, and you see, I've only had two cups of coffee. You see, you don't know this part of me, Conrad. Now I've, I've stayed, I've stayed at the Conradison, you know, this past week, you were kind enough to get up at 
five o'clock in the morning and take me to the airport. So you've been around me a little bit, but I haven't had to function in yeah. any kind of meaningful way. It's easy just to grab your shit, throw it in your bag, throw it in the back of the Maybach, boom, off you go to the airport. We don't have to have much of a conversation. Yeah. You know, we're both kind of waking up. That's one thing. But, you know, to sit here in front of the camera and a microphone and do a podcast and actually have to think and respond and form coherent thoughts it's a fucking challenge for me without at least a pot of coffee in me. And you're going to get a look at that. I'm afraid. Well, I'm excited about it. And I'm excited to see what Triller does with fight. I think fight is a, a genius company. Who's been way ahead of the curve. You know, they had that whole influencer thing where, you know, uh, it's almost like referral marketing that the adult industry used 20 something years ago, and they've leveraged it to make themselves a, a powerhouse. And now they're a part of Triller and. I think we're going to see more and more folks start to do business with trailer. So it's a fun time in the entertainment and pay-per-view business, but let's talk about the matter at hand slamboree 96. This is the return of battle bowl, the lethal lottery. We hadn't seen battle bowl since 1993. I think the first time I remember seeing it was Starcade 91. So it's a little less than five years old, but if I'm honest with you, Eric, I would have been okay with, uh, it being a one and done concept in Starcade 91. This is its own pay-per-view once upon a time in November of 93. Uh, but the concept is it's like a Lord of the ring. It's a tournament consisting of two rounds. And then the members of the remaining teams go into the battle Royal. So for those of you who've never seen a battle bowl, every wrestler's name was put into a random drawing and then tag teams were selected at random. And the winning team of each match would then be entered into a battle Royal later in the night. And the winner of the battle bowl would receive a ring. I think we've touched on this before, but battle bowl, obviously uh, a little tongue in cheek reference to the super bowl or any sort of football bowl championship. If you win the super bowl, what do you get? You get a ring. Well, if you win the battle bowl, you get a ring. This feels like a dustyism. Am I far off? No, you're absolutely right. This was a this this was a a, a Dusty Rhodes creation for sure, and I, and I have to I have to admit, you know, I had a hard time watching the show. You know, I got up at four o'clock this morning sure. to review this show, um, and, and to, to be ready for you because you're off to uh, enjoy your weekend with your family, and. I really had a hard time getting through this one. There were, there was a couple moments that I went, wow, this is pretty cool, but this one is really, really hard to watch. And, you know, I've got my theories as to why, I mean, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of reasons why, but I think the underlying reason, at least for me is there was absolutely no story and no drama. Yeah. I knew you were going to say it was a little bit, you know, you had, we'll talk about it when we get into the matches, but overall for two hours and 46 minutes and 13 seconds of my fucking morning this morning i was i was in pain it was tough to watch conrad you know one of the things i really dig about this show and doing it with you is we get an opportunity to sample products from our sponsors before we endorse them and that opens up the door for a whole new world because we get to try things that we otherwise maybe were thinking about trying but never quite got around to. And I love this one because I don't talk about it much, but for about the last six months, I've been working pretty hard on dropping some weight. Something that was really easy for me to do, you know, growing up as a kid, because I was always, you know, involved in athletics, whether it was wrestling or martial arts, and I loved to run and I loved to be active. And as I got older and busier, um, 
not so much. And the weight starts creeping up. I'm going to take out way too often. And you know the you know what kills me the most? What's that? Snacking. Oh. I've always been a snacker. And that's one of the great things about Nutrisystem is they provide you with certain snacks to kind of get you through that craving, but still keep you on the track for losing weight. It's convenient. I got right to deliver it right to my door. Wow. It's just like Christmas when I get these things. And this one was a really good one to, uh, to open up because there was so much great product in there. And if you're serious about losing weight, and it's hard, man, especially as you're getting older and you've got to get some bad habits. But if you're really focused, you know, there's there's a there's a plan there. And anytime you have a plan and you work the plan, generally speaking, you're going to get great, great results. And a lot of people are getting great results with nutrients. In fact, you can lose up to 18 pounds in your first month, depending how committed you are. So uh, can't, can't say enough good things about Nutrisystem, man. It can be the answer to your weight loss challenge. Not yours, Conrad, but the general you or yours if you're out there and you're trying to drop some weight check out nutrisystem man absolutely nutrisystem offers perfectly portioned foods delivered right to your door that means no shopping in busy grocery stores you just heard eric mention with nutrisystem you could lose up to 18 pounds in your first two months the plan is clinically proven to put your body in fat burning mode and help you achieve safe and healthy weight loss it's going to teach you how to lose weight and learn how to keep it off all with Nutrisystem. They've even got a new top rated app called new me for extra motivation to help you stay on track. I know Eric's big on coaching. Well, how about this unlimited one-on-one coaching, which is pretty cool. And it's all science-based, but don't take our word for it. Why not try it right now? Order Nutrisystem. Now go to Nutrisystem.com forward slash 83 and you'll get 50% off Eric. 50% off? How great of a deal is that? And when you get it and you get that 50% off, reach out to me on social media and I'll come over and we'll have a snack together. <laughs> Do it right now. Order Nutrisystem now. Go to Nutrisystem.com forward slash 83 to get 50% off. It was tough to watch. I uh, I have to admit there were parts that I, I fast forwarded. But I guess what I wanted to ask about was you know, this feels like something you would have been down on even back then, because it is sort of short on story. Don't get me wrong. It's interesting. And I guess we should add context, right? That's what we do here on the show. The old after magazines as they were called. But if you go down to the grocery store and see the big newsstand, there's probably four or five different wrestling magazines. Yes. There's a WWF magazine. Yes. There's a WCW magazine, but those other two, three or four, whatever they may be. Those were what was referred to as after magazines. And those magazines had their bread and butter on a lot of fantasy talk. What if Hulk Hogan wrestled, um, sting right before he came to WCW sort of thing. And this is sort of the same thing where, well, what would happen if these guys got together? And I think that curiosity is really the way you could, I guess the only way to try to sell this pay-per-view in hindsight, do you know? why you didn't sort of put your foot down on this. If, if it is so far from what you enjoy from a storytelling standpoint, a couple reasons. Uh, one is, as you've heard me say before, every pay-per-view has to have its own personality, right? It has to be unique. It can't be just another pay-per-view that feels like another 
television show without the commercials. It's got to have it. it, There's something about it that has to be unique. And this concept, while I didn't like it for a lot of reasons, um, was unique and there was some legacy to it. And, you know, and again, it's easy for me to do the same thing everybody else does. And I, you know, I, I, I call people out for doing it. You know, it's easy for me now, 20 some odd years later, whatever it is, 25 years later to, to look at this and go, why wouldn't, why didn't I do that? Why did I let them do this? This is horrible. Why didn't I catch that? How could I have made that better? So I can go back and rebook this show, not necessarily in terms of matches, but I could certainly from a format perspective, look, and I did this morning, I couldn't stop thinking about it as I was kicking my own ass. Um, there were, there would have been so many ways to make this idea, the battle concept so much better than it ended up being and creating story that otherwise didn't exist. That's the problem with this. It's an attraction and you have that inherent, wow, curiosity factor, as you just pointed out, you know, what would happen, you know, what's eventually going to happen when the Steiners for the very first time face each other. That's a natural curiosity and one that can be built upon if you attempt to do it. Right. But we didn't, not on this pay-per-view. Perhaps there was some speculation, you know, on the TV shows leading up to it. But, you know, the fact that all of these random drawings took place and nobody saw it. Right. The audience didn't see anybody's reaction. We didn't get a chance to hear anybody's thoughts. You know, BG Nokler and Tony Schiavone or anybody else didn't come up to Scott, you know, Steiner and say, hey, what's going to happen if you end up facing your brother? And get a soundbite. It doesn't have to be a four-minute promo. Let's just get inside the head of Scott Steiner as if all of a sudden he's realizing that for the first time in his life, he's going to have to compete against his brother. Those little sound bites leading up to their match um, where they did face each other for the very first time could have created more drama and more story than, well, Gene Oakland reached a hat, pulled the names out. Here they are. Let's watch them wrestle. What's going to happen? There's just absolutely no drama, no story, no build, no anticipation. Let me take that back. There was some inherent anticipation or curiosity. But if you look at the Sarsa formula, story, anticipation, reality, surprise, and action, what did we get? How how many of those elements did we actually get in this show? One. One. Anticipation. Right. Or curiosity. And it wasn't built upon. It was just kind of put out there. Here it is. Let's see what happens as opposed to building it up. And I think that's, that's the most flagrant foul from a production point of view and a formatting point of view that I saw in this show is just absolutely no freaking story. You know, I know that this is, um, it's a different time in wrestling. And, and we're going to talk about that a lot for the rest of the year here, because a lot of things in wrestling are going to be, I don't know, passe because the NWO just, you know, it, it doubles down on the realism, but this whole idea of this pay-per-view coming to be, is this, you know, I, I, I want to ask this in a way where you want to immediately have a knee jerk reaction. So, but I don't know how to phrase it where that won't happen. <laughs> You, you, you made it very clear a moment ago. I felt like pay-per-views needed to have their own identity. They needed to have, 
you know, something that made them unique on the other channel, the WWF had had that for years and years with the Royal rumble. Right. Is this what you hoped would be your Royal rumble? No. So no, even, 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 even with the drawing aspect, even with the battle Royal at the end, this, there was not a hope that this could be a similar tent pole event for WCW in the way the Royal rumble is in regards to the randomization or whatever you want to call it. No, not, not from my perspective, perhaps okay. from Dusty's because he was the one that created it. Right. I don't know what was going through Dusty's mind when he developed this, this format or this idea. Um, I can tell you from my perspective, number one, Slamboree was always going to be one of our least popular pay-per-views of the year. It just was the wrong time to, to build up a big temple pay-per-view. You're coming right off WrestleMania. All the, all the focus, all the intention is on WrestleMania. That's a tough match to follow. You know, it's a tough pay-per-view to follow. It's a tough act to follow. And everybody's kind of spent by this point on wrestling. The TV hot levels, households using television are starting to really drop during this time of year. There's other things going on that people are interested in outside of their homes and watching television. So there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why um, in my mind, at least slamboree was always going to be, yeah, well, we're going to do one. We're going to make a million or a million and a half bucks off of it, but it is not going to be ever going to be a Halloween havoc, no matter how we format it. And I, you, you know, I think it's a fair comparison, you know, was WCW trying to make this a Royal rumble? Certainly it was a, derivative out of respect to dusty of a Royal rumble, but I don't think anybody in their right mind ever thought it was going to somehow compete with, or be at the same level as a Royal rumble. I want to talk briefly about something you said there, the, the hut levels. And you also talked about the time of year. Uh, you and I had a conversation, I don't know, uh, a week ago. And it was about where we thought the ratings would wind up for both NXT and AEW. Now that they were no longer in direct competition, now that they've separated and NXT's on Tuesday and AEW's on Wednesday, what would be the result of that separation with regard to the ratings? And I think both you and I were a little surprised with the result on not only the WWE side, but the AEW side. And when you and I talked about the AEW th thing, you felt that we're heading into the worst time of the year from a television perspective. And you're qualified to know that since you you've been in, involved with, with not only WCW, but impact and WWE for so long, just smarten us up on why the, the spring and the summer months are just historically not as strong. Well, I, I think it's true for television across the board and we're not there yet. You know, this is mid April. Right. So we're not really into that, um, that, that time of year where households using television or hut um, begins to drop. Uh, we will be in another three weeks, maybe another month. As the weather gets warmer, as it stays lighter longer, people tend to do more things away from the home. 
you know, you just, you find, you know, in, in the majority of the country now in certain places like Florida and Arizona, Southern California, you know, the whole Southeastern part of the United States, uh, where the weather is generally warm throughout the year, it's not as big of a factor, but when you get into the Northeast, for example, where the highest concentration of households are, or, you know, throughout the upper Midwest, Chicago, another major market, you know, Minneapolis, you know, Seattle, you know, a lot of major cities, St. Louis, even, you know, they, they, they get a pretty stiff winter. So if you just kind of look at a map and look at, you know, average temperatures across the country throughout the year, once you get into those parts of the country where once the weather starts getting nice and it's up into the sixties and the seventies, and now it's light till nine o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night during certain times of the year, during the summer, people aren't inside watching television. They're not inside watching weekly television, you know, watching television during the week. So they're not getting as hooked on stories and characters and events and pay-per-views and things like that because they're just out doing other stuff. Now, it's been a while since I've been in the business directly, and maybe that's different now because people can watch stuff on their phone while they're watching their kids play Little League. Right, right. (laughs) You know, maybe it's going to be different now. But traditionally, the nicer it gets – the lighter it stays longer, the less people are indoors watching television, which means the number of people being exposed to your product drops proportionately. And that's why, you know, when you and I were talking last week, this is great that, you know, the two companies finally, or WWE decided to, you know, move over to Tuesday nights. They felt that was a better spot for them for whatever their reasons were that I have no idea. And nobody does other than them, but they made the move and it worked out for them. And obviously, it worked for AEW. They delivered the second highest rating in the history of the show. They opened up the show with, I think, around 1.5 million viewers in their premiere episode. They kind of dropped down and were hovering in that seven to eight, 800,000 viewer range, and I'll give or take a couple, um, throughout the year. They'd get close to maybe a million, get up to 900,000, and they drop back down to 700 again. Now they're up to 1.2 million, which is fantastic by today's standards. Five years ago, it would have been a death sentence. But by today's standards, that's damn good and good for them. It's growth. They're moving the needle. They're growing their audience. That's a great thing. The challenge is going to be maintaining that throughout the summer when people are busy playing softball, hanging with their buddies, taking their kids to Little League, or doing whatever they're doing during the week, which is not sitting in the house and watching television because that's what they've been doing all freaking winter. Let's let's talk about uh, Battle Bowl a little bit here. The return... You know, we've, we've said from the beginning, this was really a dusty creation. Do you remember it? I guess maybe the better question is, is the feeling here a little bit of uh, everybody's still in WrestleMania mode. We've got to deliver a pay-per-view. We need them to have their own identity. I don't love it, but I don't have anything better and we're contracted to do it. Fuck it. Let's do battle bowl. Or was there a really strong advocate? inside WCW besides dusty for the concept. No, there wasn't a strong advocate, but no, it wasn't. So it wasn't as apathetic as you, you know, you, you described, right. You know, it wasn't like a, Hey, fuck it. We've got nothing else to do. I can't come up with a better idea. So let's just throw this shit up against the wall and see if this sticks. It's only may who cares. Nobody's going to be watching it anyway. It wasn't that. Um, 
from my perspective, and again, this was early on in that part of my life. I'd only really been actively involved in creative at this point for less than a year. Up until up until Nitro, I was pretty much hands off when it came to creative for the most part, um, because I didn't have the confidence or the experience to to feel like I had a a, a clear enough, sound enough voice to have much of a voice in the room. So I let people who had more experience than I do, do that. Um, once Nitro came along, that changed things a little bit for me because that was really on me. That was Ted Turner sitting across the table from me going, Hey, Eric, go do this. That changed things just a little bit for me. Yeah. Um, the format of Nitro caused me to have more involvement really in the format and the elements of the show that I wanted to be unique, but I still didn't get involved in actual storyline really until May of 96, probably by this time or, you know, by April, I was already kind of playing with the NWO story, not playing with it. I had basically started framing it and filling in the blanks and adding some color and depth and all that kind of stuff. But this was still early on. And for me, the way I was looking at this was, okay, we're going we're gonna to use this battle ball format because there's a lot of support for it. Nobody was like pounding on the wall and being, you know, the number one advocate for it. Nobody was leading the charge. But I think the consensus on the team was, look, this, this could be a good format. We could figure out a way to make it interesting. And there were elements of it that were really interesting. I think one of the th- purposes this pay-per-view provided was to help launch other stories. And we certainly saw that in the, with Ric Flair and Randy Savage and Arn Anderson. You know, the fact that the horsemen, despite the fact that they had this unique opportunity, were going to somehow covertly use that opportunity to elevate Ric Flair and to elevate the four horsemen. That's what I mean by using this pay-per-view as a platform to really advance a storyline or two. And, and there were a couple, but for the most part, it was just random. Hey, let's put these two people together because it'll scratch that curiosity itch that you, you know, brought up just a few moments ago. That was the logic that was going into it. Generally speaking, from my point of view is if we can use this pay-per-view to launch story going forward, um, then it serves its purpose. Are you looking for the perfect gift for mom or another loved one? Listen, if you're like me, you start to run out of things to give mom. Feels like we got birthdays, we got Christmas, and we got Mother's Day. And sometimes moms are hard to buy for. I know mine is. But this is a home run. Especially if you haven't been able to keep in touch with family as much as you might normally would have. The skylight frame to the rescue, baby. This is a touchscreen photo frame you can email photos to, and they appear in seconds. So mom can see your favorite moments. We actually set up Skylight for my mother-in-law last year, and she absolutely loves it. She received the first photo, and from then on, it was a wow moment every single time. Now the whole family is sending photos to her frame, all the grandkids, the whole deal. And here's the thing, man. Skylight brings people together. My mother-in-law recently relocated from Denver to North Carolina, but we're in Alabama. No problem, thanks to Skylight. You're always right there. It's staying in touch these days with the people we love. It's more important than ever. And the easiest way to do it is Skylight. 
It really is a photo frame you can email photos to anytime from anywhere. This is a great way to feel close to those even when they're far away. You can set this thing up in less than 60 seconds and even the least tech savvy person can use it. My mother-in-law has one. Seriously, anyone in the family can send photos to this frame. I mentioned the grandkids are doing it. How about cousins are doing it? She's got an extended family in Minnesota doing it. By the way, it looks awesome. It's a gorgeous 10 inch touch screen. It's skyline frame. You can swipe through your photos with your finger or even tap to thank the person who sent the photo. How cool is that? But this is my favorite part of this product, a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Meaning if you don't love your skylight, they'll offer you a full refund. Now here's a little pro tip. You can preload it with your favorite photos for a very special mother's day gift and surprise them with photos. They didn't even know you had, and you can tap that heart button and it lets the sender know you love the photo. So this really is interactive. It's so simple. I hate to feel like I'm piling on my mother-in-law could set this up. Their customers love them. Skylight is something you're going to see people raving about. Check out this Facebook review quote. This gives her a little glimpse of us every day. And when we talk on the phone, she can talk to the boys about the pictures we sent. Boom. Bringing families together. It's what skylight does. And now as a special holiday offer, you can get $10 off your purchase of a skylight frame. When you go to skylightframe.com and enter promo code 83 weeks, that's right. To get $10 off your picture of a skylight frame, just go to skylightframe.com and enter promo code 83 weeks. That's S K Y L I G H T F R A M E.com. And the promo code is 83 weeks. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. We mentioned just to add context that everything's about to change uh, in a week or so. Scott Hall's going to show up and then Kevin Nash, not too long after that. At this point, you've got both under contract or at least a verbal or a deal memo, I think is what you used to call it back then. Well, Scott would have been, Scott was definitely under contract by this point. And I'm pretty certain just based on timing, so is Kevin. If we weren't locked, my dog and my wife are right. My dog is really excited to see my wife this morning. I am too. You should see what she's wearing. This is hot. Baby. <laughs> I know it's early and you just got a bed, but you are smoking over there. This is so awesome. <laughs> we, we, we should mention that uh, Blue Chew is a proud sponsor of our program, and Eric didn't need any this morning. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He doesn't. It's been a while. Hey, babe, can I get a cup? Thank you. Uh-oh, another cup of coffee. You know what that means. Oh, I'm, I'm about to get um, motherfucked. I'm here. sorry. My wife distracted me. What What was the question? <laughs> well, about Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. We think oh, yeah, Kevin no, Nash- Scott was definitely under contract. I'm pretty sure Kevin was as well. No, in fact, I know he was because by this point, um, I had already been to, um, no, that's not true. I hadn't talked to Hulk. Hulk was MIA. Hulk was doing salmon with muscles right up in the middle of nowhere, California. Um, so I hadn't talked to Hulk in a while, but certainly the NWO story with Scott and Kevin, I had been talking to sting by this point about being the third guy. So a lot of those pieces, at least the preliminary pieces of what what the NWO was going to be before I got that call from Hulk, uh, those, those, those pieces were already in place, including Kevin. Let's also mention that, uh, we've got some, some big news heading into Slamboree on April 19th, Brian Pillman was involved in a very serious accident where he rolled his Humvee 
Unfortunately, he suffered a crushed ankle. Uh, this is all happening in a time where you guys had had some fun in the first quarter of 1996 with, I respect you Booker man and all that jazz. What do you remember of Brian's accident here? Not much. I mean, obviously I heard about it. I, I, I was concerned for Brian and was stayed on top of it as best I could, but I wasn't close enough to Brian to, you know, I didn't call him every day to see how he was doing. I didn't really talk to his wife too much. I may have checked in with her once or twice, but that really would have more than likely to have been Kevin Sullivan would have been the one that was having day-to-day contact with, with Brian, but certainly I was aware of it and concerned about it, but wasn't involved in anything relating to it beyond that. Three days later on April 22nd on nitro, the giant beat Ric Flair to win the world title. And this title change came out of nowhere. Seemingly on the April 13th, WCW Saturday night, Flair teamed with the giant to defeat the American males. Two days later on nitro Flair and giant would challenge Lex and sting for the tag titles, but they lose by DQ and the following week on nitro sting and Luger take on Flair and giant in a title versus title match where Flair's world title and sting and Luger's tag titles are on the line. And the match ends when Flair inadvertently threw powder into giant's face, which was intended for sting and Luger. Of course that pissed off the giant and set up a title match here and the giant beat Flair to win the title. Talk me through the decision to take the belt off of Rick and put it on the giant here. Was this as simple as, Hey, we need a big happening on nitro. We need something monumental to happen. So let's switch the title on TV. I don't think it was so much monumental Conrad as it was unexpected, Okay, but you know, the, the element of surprise, the, the commitment that I had early on with nitro before we even launched the first episode of nitro it was really, really clear to me that the the element of surprise communicating to the audience that you have to watch Nitro because it's live and anything can happen. That was, I've talked about this before, I, I, and I only say that because I, I want people to know I don't like talking about the same things all the time, but the research that that we did. When I say we, I mean, it was driven by Brad Siegel, by the way. It wasn't my idea. I had never really been involved directly in any kind of research. I, I had seen research. Other people before me in WCW had had done some research. It was really poor, piss poor research, which is probably why when Brad said, we're going to, you know, we're going to do some focus groups and we're going to do some research. I was, yeah, I was ambivalent about it because my previous experiences with research um, didn't really enlighten me in any way, shape, or form. You didn't learn anything from it that you didn't already know, really. Right. So I went into the research that we did with TNT because when Ted Turner said, okay, Eric, I want you to do this, and it was up to Brad and I to work together, We didn't. neither one of us got to vote. <laughs> we, we both just had to row the boat. We didn't get to decide where we were going. That was That direction was chartered for us by Ted. But to C- Brad Siegel's credit, not mine, Brad found the right research company and they did research the right way. And we did focus groups all over the United States. Sometimes there were 20, 25, 35 people in that in that focus group. And these focus groups were assembled by the research company and they found kind of a balance, if you will, of, you know, very active WWF fans 
uh, very loyal to WWF, very loyal to WCW. And then there was always a segment of that audience, a portion of that, that focus group that were, eh, I kind of watch wrestling once in a while. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I really don't care which one it is, you know, because that's the audience you want to win over. You know, you want to you win the audience that's ambivalent, you know, that are kind of peripheral, part-time, you know, maybe I'll watch it, maybe I won't, fans. That's your opportunity. They've kind of already said, yeah, I kind of like wrestling once in a while, but I'm not in love with it. Well, your job is to make them in love with it. You know, if you've already got a loyal WCW portion of that focus group, well, you've already got them. They've, you don't need to convert the converted, so to speak. Right. And with the hardcore WWF, I say WWF because that's what it was at the time, WWE now, that hardcore base, I want to know why they like that product more than they like ours. There's a reason for it. I want to know what it is. And a really well-executed series of focus groups, you can't just do one because audiences are different all over the country. Audiences in the Northeast, you know, they may like one style or one type of presentation or certain elements of the presentation more than perhaps an audience in the Southeast or Southwest. An audience on the West Coast is going to like a little bit different presentation or uh, different elements than perhaps people in the Northeast. So you've got to you got to move around the country a little bit to get a, a, a complete picture. But one of the underlying messages in every one of those focus groups was, "I want to expect the unexpected." Yeah. I want to be surprised. The element of surprise, that feeling that anything can happen is one of the reasons I like professional wrestling in general. And every time I heard that, I was like, okay, I'm going to write that shit down. Yeah. Oh, I heard it again. I'm going to write that shit down. And there were other things. It wasn't the only thing, but consistently and in, in, in probably in, in order of significance, the number one or number two thing that I heard in every one of those focus groups in every major market in the United States, including small ones, was I, I love the element of surprise. So that was my commitment um, at that point to Nitro. And, and, and I think the reason that we did the belt change with Flair wasn't because I thought the Giant was going to be the next big thing. It wasn't because, oh, Ric Flair's been out there too long. We got to change it. It wasn't for any other reason then. If we do this shit on, on Nitro, it's going to catch people by surprise. They're not going to see it coming. And that was my focus. I'm not saying it was the right one, by the way. I think there were certain times and ways that I used that element of surprise in our favor. There were certain times I attempted to use that element of surprise. And eh, might not have been the smartest move. I'm not justifying Flair, Hogan, and the belt change necessarily other than to point out why I did it. Have you finally made the decision you know that one decision that you've been on the fence about. Do I become a member of ad-free shows? Do I take the plunge and become part of the coolest, most badass wrestling community out there? My friends, the answer is yes, yes, yes. And what cool hook do I have to tell you about this week, you ask? Well, if you were living under a rock, then you need to know that Conrad's team just got bigger. Another WWE Hall of Famer is now part of the family. Who, you might ask? Well, that's J-E-F-F-J-A-R-R-E-T-T. That's right. Jeff Jarrett is in the fold 
and his new weekly podcast makes its debut worldwide on Tuesday, May 4th, My World with Jeff Jarrett. But maybe you're like me and you have no patience and want to hear it early and ad-free. Well, then ad-free shows is the place for you. Jeff and Conrad already hosted a one-hour interactive event for all members of ad-free shows, no matter their membership level. And the best part? Jeff announced he will be back for more virtual events and Q&A sessions going forward. So don't be a slap nuts. Go to adfreeshows.com and sign up today and join the wrestling movement that is lighting the world on fire. Again, that's adfreeshows.com. Let's uh, let's keep it going here and let's talk about uh, some ratings. Uh, that's always a hot topic during the Monday Night War. The WWF draws the second highest raw rating in history on May 6th. They get a 4.1 rating. What would they do for that these days? Uh, that's a 5.2 share and the undertaker and Owen Hart are headlining the show. Meanwhile, nitro does a 1.9 rating and a 3.8, a 3.8 share. Uh, this is the era where nitro has a replay. So the 1.1 rating is what we'll get for the replay, but just let's take a timeout right there. May 6th, WWE 4.1 WCW 1.9. Boy, that's going to switch in a hurry starting about a week later, right? Isn't that fascinating? It is. And it just, and I know sometimes I say these things and it sounds like I'm beating my own drum and patting myself on the back and all that. But it just proves my point. The audience is still there. Yes. They are there. This is a perfect example. That the audience that Nitro would end up having, they were they were always there. We just weren't interesting to them. Yeah. And I think when people look at wrestling today, and it was all by the way, there was all kinds of excuses for it back then. You know, from people that were a lot smarter and more experienced than me in television in general and in wrestling, and 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 I don't know if it was you know making themselves feel better or if they were just throwing in the towel because they didn't really have the answer, but there were a million reasons, you know, today it's, well, you know, people are watching television on their phone, so it changes everything. Okay. I'll buy that. But there were the same excuses, different excuses, but the same idea back then there's a million reasons why, you know, people within the wrestling industry, at least the ones that I was exposed to and the television industry, we're going to wrestling's just, it's tired. People are over it. You know, after the, the steroid trials, it kind of lost its, it's lost its flavor. It's it's not as hot as as it used to be, and it's probably in a couple of years not even going to be around. I heard a lot of that. Wow. And, and for, usually from you know advertisers and you know in the business to the business side of things, people were just not convinced that wrestling was going to be a hot property for any length of time. And they had other strong feelings about wrestling audiences in general. You know they were not necessarily a a uh, a, a, a target of opportunity for advertisers, quite the opposite. In fact, wrestling was an opportunistic buy for after, af- advertisers. And when I say opportunistic, it means because it was cheap. Yeah. 
So if if you were M and Mars, for example, and you spend eighty percent of your budget, you know, in areas where you know historically your ads for your M and Mars products are going to get a ROI, return on the investment, and you can support that with a couple of years worth of data, you're going to spend eighty percent of your budget over there, and that other twenty percent you're going to use, you're going to keep that in the bank so that you can buy remnant ad time or you can buy advertising time within shows that has a hard time selling to that otherwise premium ad sales market. That's what wrestling was for the most part. It's completely different today, but we're talking 96, 95 and all the era, you know, era, eras before that. Whew, I need more coffee. Um, but at this point, wrestling was pretty soft as a as a as an advertising commodity. Let me mention too something that that we talked about a lot with uh, Mister Hurd on our conversations with Conrad. Uh, that's available right now, by the way, over at AdFreeShows.com, as well as everything else we're doing here early and ad free. But I talked to Mister Hurd about you know when when he was in charge of WCW and. Uh, one of the big things that he was successful in was, was getting a beer sponsorship. He had Coors, uh, on his watch. They did the tennis shoe deal with ruse and a few others, but he did specifically speak about how Turner marketed and tried to sell their quote unquote sports package. So historically it would be more expensive to advertise on the Braves or the Hawks or whatever than it would be on WCW. But when you put all of it together, it made it very attractive as a package for advertisers, because now instead of there being pushback on the price of those individual programs, when you, for lack of a better word, bundle it together, which we know Geico loves to do with your home and auto insurance, you could save a boatload of cash because the wrestling cum was so high, but the price was so low that when you average it in with the other products, now it becomes very attractive. If you're the person who say the marketing director for an Eminem Mars, now, all of a sudden, instead of having to sell everyone else on our team on, no, we really need Braves baseball, or we really need Hawks basketball or what have you. Now we could say, look at all of this, uh, inventory that we have, the, the number of spots we've got, the total number of folks who are going to be watching it. And, oh, look how great the CPM is because the cost would be much more effective if we lumped wrestling in there, fair to say, fair to say, and to dig a little deeper in that. And for people listening to this, that haven't been exposed to this show and aren't as enlightened as some who have been following us now for almost three years or th over three years, CPN does cost per thousand. And generally in, in going back to WCW early on, Turner was selling eyeballs, right? When I talked earlier about an opportunistic buy, Eminem Mars, Eminem Mars was buying eyeballs. They weren't buying demos. You know, we hear a lot about demos today because now everybody's a television expert and they understand television programming and ad sales better than anybody in the world. And they write about it every week. But back in the day, uh, at this period of point, this period of time, at least, a lot of advertisers that were you know, opportunistic buyers, they were just buying eyeballs. They didn't care where those eyeballs came from. Now, WCW, by virtue, and you pointed it out very clearly and, and, and correctly, WCW had the WCW Saturday Night Show, which, you know, by today's standards, even by the standards back then, was not burning down the house right. in terms of viewers. But you're still delivering a couple million viewers, you know, a week 
off that show. Oh, and you've got this Sunday night show delivered about 75, 65, 75% of what the Saturday night show did. But you add that million and a half to the 2 million. I'm just picking numbers out of thin air because I don't remember exactly what they were at the time, but I think I'm probably close. Now you've got 3 million eyeballs, three and a half million eyeballs. Oh, wait a minute. They have six programs, WCW programs or four, whatever it was, in syndication. Nielsen tracks every one of those shows, and they all have a number that they deliver to the cum, as you pointed out, the, the cumulative number. So WCW, no, it wasn't a hot, it certainly wasn't WWF. Um, it still suffered from, you know, the, the, the perception of what wrestling fans were and the, the kind of disposable income they had. But now you got 4 million eyeballs. Well, actually eight. <laughs> you got 4 million sets of eyeballs when you add it all together. Well, you take that 4 million, you know, that number of 4 million, you know, people watching the combined WCW programming added into the Braves looks pretty favorable. Yeah. But those advertisers weren't buying the individual show. They were buying the eyeballs. They were buying the total number. And that was great for some shows. And, you know, the Braves got a bigger percentage of that revenue than WCW did. Um, it just was what it was. But that's how, you know, ad sales operated back in the day. Now, that changed, obviously, and it's much different today, fortunately. Um, and I, largely, I credit WWE for that. You know, I don't think anybody's done a better job of making professional wrestling programming as popular with advertisers as W. Not, it's not even close. Nobody has. And it's been a long-term effort. It's been a 30-year effort. And it's, and it's paying off big dividends. But back then, man, they were just buying eyeballs. They didn't care where they came from. They didn't care how old they were. They didn't care how much money they had. They didn't care where they lived. Just deliver eyeballs. That's all I want. I want to mention, too, one of the things that I think wrestling has done really well. I apologize for getting down in the weeds, but I'm a nerd for this stuff, and I love it. So humor me for a moment. I like the way wrestling has allowed their characters to be involved with the advertising. And I know in theory that may seem a little silly, but let me add some context. Every wrestling fan listening to this knows that macho man, Randy Savage was closely associated with slim Jims, and we all know snap into it, et cetera, et cetera. That really worked. And I'm sure it happened before. And certainly it's happened after, but even today you see WWE with cricket wireless and snickers and a few other folks they're allowing the the performers inside of the television program themselves to appear in the commercials and from an advertiser standpoint that's a dream so normally when you go to a commercial break let's let's use the radio equivalent for a moment they would call that a stop set and it would just be one commercial after another for a, you know a minute two minutes whatever it may be and you just sort of get lost in the shuffle, but radio also allows what's called an Island spot. So the DJ would welcome you back from the song. Hey, that was Metallica coming up next. We've got Ozzy Osbourne, but first your chance to win some Limp Biscuit tickets, whatever. Uh, and then they're going to immediately do a, a localized promo for a local advertiser. And don't forget this weekend, blah, blah, blah. And then he may go into music or he may play another commercial afterwards. But the idea is it is a real endorsement from that host 
And those endorsement spots are invaluable. They charge a premium and, and so they cost more, but they cost more because they work better. And WWE has allowed that in more recent years, I think more than ever. And so if you are an, uh, an advertising agency and yes, I could run an ad inside of, you know, two and a half men, or I could run an ad. You can't go get Charlie Sheen to do your spot. First of all, that's a syndication. Now he's not even doing it anymore, but even if you could, he probably wouldn't, it wouldn't be affordable. It wouldn't be something that the company or the station itself would promote, et cetera, et cetera. But WWE embraces it. And I, I don't know that there is many more television advertising opportunities that are more welcoming than WWE. And I'm sure eventually AEW will do this, by the way, I think it would be tremendous to see the young bucks, super kick something in the middle of an AEW show. Uh, because if you're watching that show, you are familiar with the young bucks. So by lending their credibility and allowing their own talent on the show to be leveraged, it does create a better opportunity for the advertiser, right? In so many ways, you know, in the most basic ways, if you're, if you're a viewer sitting at home and you go from, you know, programming into a commercial, everybody's natural tendency is to either just disconnect, you know, look at your phone, yep. you know, go grab a beer, do whatever you're going to do. Right. Or in some cases, just change the channel. Yeah. You might not be all that excited about what you've been watching and you're just curious what may be going on somewhere else. But when you immediately go to a commercial featuring talent that you're familiar with and you like, and you support, you ain't going anywhere. That's right. And that's the magic for the advertiser. And that's also the magic for, you know, the company, whether it's WWE or AEW, because that allows them to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want people to tune into your spot. You don't want them to tune out of your spot. Like people have been conditioned to do because keep in mind as time has gone on, you know, yeah, we've got two hours on Monday. We got three hours, but every year it seems we're getting longer and longer and longer commercial breaks. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that. We'll get into that at another time. Cause that's a long winded conversation. But as these commercial breaks get longer, you run even more risk of losing that audience. When you've got a three or four minute commercial break, three or four minutes is a long time. Oh yeah. To allow your viewer to go, yeah, I wonder what's going on over here. Or, you know, I'm going to take the dog for a quick walk you know, in between breaks. I'm going to go out and grab a beer, whatever. There's a lot of opportunity to lose your audience that you've been trying so hard to engage, you know, throughout the course of your show. But when that commercial pops up and it's, whoa, wait a minute, what's Kofi Kingston doing in this commercial? You know, it's, it's pretty freaking cool. And it's a win, win, win. Yes. WWE wins because they're getting a premium now. They're getting, not only are they, they not in an opportunistic buy situation because they're, they've gone from opportunistic to a great opportunity. There's a big difference for an advertiser. And now you're going to magnify that opportunity by a multiple of two or three yeah. by using talent in their spot. That's going to create a loyalty to that product with advertisers that is almost impossible to create in any other television show. It's pretty amazing. And it all started, you know, credit where credit is due. Randy Savage and Slim Jim and WWE before Randy came to WCW, that was a thing. Randy brought Slim Jim with him to WCW as we've talked about before that model that WWE 
created with Randy and Slim Jim back whenever that was. Um, I'm guessing 94, 95, 93. I don't even remember when that camp campaign started. Whenever it was, we're seeing it today, but we're seeing it expanded. And now there's a lot more talent involved in a lot more commercials with a lot more advertisers. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing for the business. It's a testament to how well that campaign worked, Eric. They're still doing it. And, and, and Lord God rest his soul. He hasn't been with us in 10 years. And there's it really is amazing. I still see it every once in a while. I'll, you know, stop at a convenience store or something when we're on the road and, and you still see, they're still using Randy. They're still marketing that it's really, it, it is a testament to how well it worked and how strong of a character Randy was because he made a, a lifelong impression on an industry. And by the way, I remember eating slim Jims when I was like eight years old, you know, that was like a treat for me as a little kid growing up in Detroit and company's been around for a long time. And obviously, you know, Randy made it work. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson. I know what you're thinking. This guy has another podcast. Listen, I get it, but let me explain. For years, I've been asked if you could have a podcast with anyone in wrestling today, who would it be? And I've been consistent that one of those names was Jeff Jarrett. Now hear me out here. Jeff Jarrett is a third generation promoter. He grew up in the Memphis territory, broke into business in 86, won the intercontinental and walked out on Vince McMahon in 95. He jumped ship to start working with the horsemen in 96 and then told the world what he really thought about Austin 316 in 98. He held up Vince McMahon for a ton of cash in 99 and jumped ship again to become world champion in 2000. And then on the final night of the Monday night war, the only ever raw nitro simulcast, he was publicly fired by Vince McMahon in 2001. So without a job in wrestling, he decides to embrace his family heritage as a promoter and create jobs himself and started his own promotion in 02. And then a former WCW employee who was on his team committed fraud that nearly bankrupted both him and his father. So he found an angel investor of sorts who wound up being indicted on one of the largest financial schemes in American history. With both of those guys facing prison time, he met with a public relations firm in Nashville to figure out how to save face only to find out the lady he was talking to had billionaire parents. And that's when things got really crazy. If Jeff Jarrett's life story were a movie script, nobody would believe it. Conrad, welcome to my world. Hear my story like you've never heard it before. Unfiltered and uncensored for the very first time. From Memphis to the WWF, WCW, TNA, and everywhere in between, nothing is off limits in my world. Subscribe today and don't miss My World with Jeff Jarrett, Tuesdays on Westwood One. Boy, I know you said it's a long story and we need to talk about it another time, but I got to circle back. You, you have a theory as to why, um, breaks are longer. Commercial breaks are longer. I, I can only assume it's because a less people are watching television. And in order for us to get the total number of eyeballs there from an advertiser standpoint, we need more, uh, time. We need more commercials. And the real function of doing that is. If we don't, our revenue falls and things haven't gotten cheaper to produce. Things have gotten more expensive to produce. 
but yet revenues are down from an advertising standpoint. So therefore, well, we need more advertisers, right? It's really that simple. You know, and I mean, we, we can, we can talk about, about it much further, but you know, you look at what's happened to television networks, you know, last night, Mrs. B and I were sitting around, we looking for something to watch and we've already w- watched the Vikings. You know, we watched it, you know, years ago when it first came out, but you know, every once in a while with a really high quality show like that, it's fun to go back and watch it because, yeah. you know, you forget. It's almost like you're watching it. For, you know, you're familiar with the characters, but, you, you know, you, you don't recall the story. You pick you up know, stuff off. the second time you might not have the first time. Exactly. So we went back and we watched Vikings last night. And I had forgotten that this was the History Channel. Yeah. The freaking History Channel. Yeah. And, and now they, they launched Vikings in 2013. But in 2005, in the early 2000s, certainly in the late 90s, History Channel was nothing more generally than old World War II documentaries. Yeah. I mean, it was was cheap. It was cheap programming. And now you look at something like Vikings on History Channel. Again, we're going back eight years, okay, but it's still relevant today. You go back and you, you look at History Channel. Somebody at the History Channel said, "Nah, we're going to do this differently. We need to elevate our network. We need to be at the same level as a TNT or a USA or any of the other kind of prime cable outlets. So we're going to invest. I don't even know how much. I was going to Google the internet last night and try to find out. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I, I'm kind of digging it now. You know, I'm going to make it my own. Um but I don't know how expensive that series was. Somebody can, you know, look it up. I probably will after the show because now I made myself more curious. But for for a network that up until 2013 was primarily relying on really cheap, low-budget programming that they could repurpose over and over and over and over again to invest the hundreds and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars they had to invest in a television series which had all of the production value, the writing, the wardrobe, the locations of a feature film. I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating. But to, to get to your point, as now, like History Channel, National Geographic, so many other what used to be kind of secondary or third level kind of cable outlets are investing hundreds of millions of dollars in their content because they've got to attract more viewers. The only because they were dying, the people weren't watching cable as much. Cable was starting, you know, to begin its free fall. And there were efforts to to shore that up. Now you look at today. There's again, you know, there's so many different places. You know, streaming is a thing now. If you're an advertiser, you have way more opportunity to spread your advertising dollar around and probably have a better chance of hitting your target audience than you did five years ago or 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago. And now that, you know, television networks like TNT and TBS and USA Network are all faced with competing with these streaming platforms. And oh, by the way, with the internet there's more and more and more opportunity to probably get more bang for your advertising buck on the internet um, than there ever has been. And because of that, as you pointed out, revenues have fallen for these cable outlets and they have two choices, either 
invest more money in your content and hope that you're going to get a hit. And by the way, that's, that's a tough bet. That's a very expensive proposition to play that game. Or you just simply slide in another 30. You know, this, this yeah. quarter, we're going to go from three minutes and 30 seconds. We're going to do, we're going to do four minutes. Well, the four minutes is not working quite well enough. So we're going to do 430. And then we're going to do picture in a picture. And we're going to try all these different ways to squeeze more ads into the show. Because from a network's point of view, you know, in WWE's case, they're spending you know billions of dollars for that content. Well, they've got to make that up. There's only one way to do it. And that's to squeeze in more ads. And it's not just WWE or AEW or anybody else. It's that way across the boards. And we've been seeing that now for years. I remember when commercial breaks were two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. I mean, if you remember back in the day during the love connection, I know it's a, it's a deep cut, but Chuck Woolery, the host, when he would go to commercial, he would say, we'll be back in, in two and two, like two minutes, two seconds. And even these days when they're, when they're promoting the rock or the, the, the young rock program on NBC, the first several weeks, and they may still be doing it, but the first several weeks, they would say young rock will be back in one minute. They don't want you to leave. They don't want you to change that channel. They don't want you to go walk the dog. And, and I think it's fascinating what you just mentioned, the whole picture in a picture concept, especially on the AEW side of things, when they were first kicking off this Wednesday night war, if you will, if that's the right phrase for it, they, they didn't go the traditional route. They would do a lot of picture in picture if they thought, Hey, this could be a time where our, our viewers are going to go check out the other program. Let's not give them a reason to leave. I thought that was a genius move by TNT or Tony Connor, whoever did it to keep fans tuned in, but also give value. And I'm sure some listeners to this would say, well, if I was an advertiser, I wouldn't want picture in a picture. They're not really paying attention to my ad. Well, as an advertiser myself, please give me the picture in a picture. I know they're not changing the channel. They're not fast forwarding. They're going to sit there and watch it. And with the exception of live sports and news, a lot of TV, a huge portion of TV is consumed through DVR and those commercials have no chance then. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, and that's a battle not, you know, not, and I've not been on this side of the equation, so I can't speak in great detail with much credibility here, but I'll just give you my perception. You know, you, you've got, let's say you're, you know, Dodge trucks, Yeah. you know, and you don't do your own advertising. There's not people inside of Dodge that does their own advertising. There are people inside of Dodge that works with their advertisers, or excuse me, that they, that work with the advertising agencies there you go. that get, that make the decisions or recommendations in most cases of, okay, if you, okay, Mr. Dodge, you've got, you know, $500 million that you're going to allocate to television advertising this year. My job as your advertising agency is to give you the biggest bang for your buck. So I'm going to go off and do my research. I'm going to do all the work that my team of advertising experts do, and we're going to come back to you with recommendations. Well, if you're producing wrestling, okay, um, you, it's going to be a hard conversation. You're going to have a hard time selling, you know, you're, you're going to have our time selling Mr. Dodge on professional wrestling in most cases. No, maybe not today was going back to the mid nineties, right? but you're going to have a hard time. And then we're going to say, well, Mr. Dodge, don't worry about it. The reason I want you to buy wrestling is because they're, they're willing to do a picture within a picture, probably 80% of the executives that would hear that 
and see an example of it would go fuck that. I don't want to do that because it's not traditional. Yes. You know, it's not the way business was normally done, but I think as it becomes more apparent and the advertisers as well as the advertising agencies that represent them are challenged by the sheer volume of content out there that they're, they're battling against and the increasing number of ads within a commercial break. I think more and more people are getting, are, are becoming more open-minded and that's one more thing that wrestling can do differently. You know, when you do with a picture to picture concept, because, you know, when you're thinking about it, when you're covering sports, you know, depending on what the sport is, generally speaking, things are kind of happening kind of fast and you, yes. know, you have some timeouts and you have, you know, half times and all that kind of stuff that you can play with. But during the course of the game, it's kind of hard to go with a commercial break and yep. a picture in a picture. Not so with wrestling, you can construct your format to take advantage of the picture in a picture to make sure that it's beneficial to the advertiser and to you as the producer you can pick that spot and the content that's going to go in it in a much more effective way than if you're covering something like sports or a movie, for example. That's it's, it's much different. It's a much better opportunity in wrestling. And I think that's one of the reasons why wrestling is probably doing better with advertisers now is because much like Randy Savage, you know, started it off and now we're seeing so much of in, in, in WWE, I think, and as you pointed out, you know, AEW and TNT are using that picture in a picture effectively. And by the way, other people did, you know, I'm pretty sure impact did it. Your TNA did it when I was there, other people have done it. It's not the first time, but I think it's becoming more and more attractive to advertisers. That was a long winded way of saying that. Jesus Christ, Eric. You got that third cup. So you're, you're rip roaring, ready to go. Let's break down. I gotta know when to shut the fuck up. That's my problem in life. There are just times when you just gotta, would you just shut the fuck up, Eric? I'm not get on to the next question. I'm not going to tell you that unless we're eight vodkas deep and I'm trying to tell a story. (laughs) So, uh, let's mention again, May 6th, we we just ran down the numbers a moment ago, 4.1 for the WWF and uh, 1.9 for WCW a week later on the 13th raw falls from a 4.1 to a 3.5. Meanwhile, nitro that was at a 1.9 is up to a 2.3. So there is a bit of a trend there, or so we hope let's recap what happens here on the 20th. So one week later, raw does a 3.1 and it was unopposed. And this is because, you know, WCW every now and again would be, um, bumped. Shall we say nitro does a 2.3. So even, even if you're moving around a little bit, it still maintains but the WWF is falling. I mean, over a two week period, they went from a 4.1 to a 3.1. And I got to think a lot of that motivation is because you had started to run vignettes for the blood runs cold character. And everybody was like, fuck, I got to see this. Maybe not so much. <laughs> I was going to say, man, did you wake up drinking this morning? Cause that's kind of fucked up. Isn't it weird though? Like, I know we've talked about it before, but. If, if this blood runs cold concept was done in 95 and not 96 or even better, maybe in 94, this thing could have got over, but unfortunately it's a little too, maybe fantastic and over the top because a week later, when Scott Hall shows up in a fucking jean jacket, it's somehow way cooler. 
Timing is everything, man. I mean, I've seen a lot of really great ideas suffer because of bad timing. I've seen a lot of lame ideas succeed because of great, great timing. You know, timing is everything. It's not just, you know, it's not as simple, right? It's, it's not, it's, it's not a science. It's an art that being professional wrestling or any, any, any kind of creative, you know, and timing plays into that. You know, you've, you've got to be, you've got to be as strategically creative as you are artistically creative, if that makes sense. And know when to know when to utilize or exploit or, or present an idea and timing can make all the difference in the world. Let's briefly talk about another guy who we agree has had some good timing over the years. Mr. Rob Van Dam. We recently discussed him on our big bang episode and it was somebody that you thought you could have done something with. Of course, he just went in the hall of fame with you. Uh, but back in this era, it was discussed in the newsletters. And I believe even uh, Rob Van Dam himself has said that he was in at least casual conversation about potentially being the glacier character. Would those conversations have been with you, maybe Kevin Sullivan, or is that more just rumor and innuendo? You know, Rob is one of the more honest, straightforward people that I've come to know over the decades. I, I'm, I'm not going to say it. I didn't have a conversation with him about it, but it doesn't sound, it doesn't ring a bell to me. So that could be my fault. Or it could be one of those stories that has just evolved over time. I'm not sure, but from the get go, that whole character was really designed for, for Ray. It wasn't, I I didn't have anybody else in mind. It wasn't like I was creating a character and looking for a way to cast it. Right. That wasn't the case. Well, it is interesting to think. What if I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Rob Van Dam had a great amount of success. You and I both think the world of Ray Lloyd, the person, but man, when he came out as glacier and it didn't go as swimmingly as maybe people wanted or or expected, he was going to be typecast after that, as a result of that character. Would you disagree? No, it's really, and it's, he's such a good dude, but yeah, you know, that he got buried with that gimmick kind of got, he got Johnny B batted. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm glad you brought him up because he's next Meltzer would report. Eric Bischoff said in an interview with Mike Mooneyham for the wrestling observer hotline and the Charleston post courier, that it was an outright lie regarding Johnny B bad's claim that after his contract expired, that he was only making $150 per match quote. We have never, ever paid Johnny $150. He knows it. And if it gets to it, I can supply copies of the checks to prove it. His contract was up. He was given a new contract and he was being paid the same rate under his old contract. There was no change in his compensation. He's an emotional guy and he, and he may have meant something else when he said it. I thought that was really nice of you to give him an out there at the end, but this is really one of the first, uh, sort of ugly departures that you had from WCW, right? I mean, he's living with hurt feelings. I guess. He, he did. I was sure he did. And, and I remember distinctly the conversation that Johnny and I had, I think it was at an, I think it was at the Atlanta airport. Um, 
when Johnny made the decision that he was going to go to the WWE. And I think Johnny wanted me to fight harder for him. I, I think Johnny felt like he really wanted to stay in WCW, but at that time I just couldn't justify it. And I didn't see it. I didn't, I, and that was my fault, not Johnny's. I didn't have an idea or a vision of where we could go with Johnny that would validate or justify the amount of money that Johnny wanted. So to me, it made more sense for Johnny to, to take a better opportunity. And I, it's, it's really a shame, you know, and I haven't seen Johnny in a long time. And I'm, I'm sure if we saw each other, we'd get along fine and everything would be great. And time, time does heal all wounds, but you know, Johnny and I always had a great relationship. We were always very friendly. You know, I used to go to Johnny's house when he was married to Rena and a lot of us would Paige would come along. There'd be a lot of guys Bagwell would show up from time to time. You know, we'd watch, you know, fights on pay-per-view together. Mm. And so I was, you know, I wasn't like best buzz with, with, with Johnny or Mark. You were, fr- you were friendly. Very, very friendly. But, you know, there comes a time when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I need this. And as the guy who had to justify or rationalize, at least in my own mind, if not anybody else's, why that made sense. And I didn't have the vision for Johnny to do that. You know, and that's that was on me. You know, looking back, would I have loved to had the idea for Johnny to kind of completely shed that Mark Merrill, excuse me, the Johnny B. Bad character and become kind of a vicious heel or even a vicious baby face for that matter and and been a little more realistic in, in his story and approach and character? Yeah, because I think that could have worked. Johnny was a talented dude. He was just saddled with a shitty gimmick. That, and, and again, I say that. I should got to be, God, I got to be careful what I say. Don't I Conrad? No, you can say whatever no, you want. I do. I do. Because sometimes I know what I'm trying to say and it comes out wrong. Johnny was a great character. Johnny's another example of a guy who had he come out in the late eighties, early nineties, maybe a different reaction, maybe a better opportunity for him, but it didn't really work when he was introduced to WCW and it was working even less as time went on. And there was in my, you know, in my mind, I didn't see any alternative to that character that made sense to me for the amount of money that Johnny wanted. As a reminder, he had gone to the WWF and debuted at WrestleMania 12. So it's still hot news here. Let's talk about what the real big news is for WCW. You're going to expand nitro to two hours. And we know eventually it's going to expand to three hours. And I think we all agree three hours is just too much, but two hours is the way most of our listeners remember nitro, but that wasn't always the case. Meltzer would say world championship wrestling announced on May 8th, that it was expanding its Monday nitro show to two hours from 8 PM. Eastern time effective on May 27th, which by the way, is the day Scott Hall debuted. Look how slick old easy E is here. Uh, The expansion of the show had been somewhat in the works for a while, but it wasn't expected to take place until the beginning of the fall television season in late August or early September, the decision to do so virtually immediately. The first week after TNT's commitments to the NBA playoffs are over, no doubt came as a response to the May 6 television ratings where nitro in a 7 PM time slot drew a 1.9 rating 
compared to raw at 9 PM, drawing its second highest rating in history of 4.1. What this means to the short-term future of wrestling is largely a matter of conjecture, but what isn't conjecture is that in some form or fashion, it will have major implications. As a best case scenario for WCW, the hour lead in will allow them to hard sell a couple of main event matches. No doubt. One of which would start nearly every week at about eight 53 PM. So it would be in progress when raw starts and the other held off for the final quarter of the show. It's believed WCW will add some new features to the show and expand the length of matches involving some more of the more talented wrestlers. Although that is pure speculation at this point. A worst case scenario is that WCW booking committee isn't equipped to put on a two hour live show each week without diluting the product. The company has been struggling as of late to put on quality television. Mondays have been hit or miss and the other shows have largely been awful. Many believe the period where it built up to a slight edge on the Monday night over WWF was a result of weekly hot shotting and that the current ratings are the hot shotting coming home to roost. WCW made a lot of long-term sacrifices by always featuring the same wrestlers and not building anyone new in its prime vehicle. Whereas the WWF rarely gave away those pay-per-view quality matches in response and bit the bullet while it basically stood even in a time slot that it used to own the challenge for WCW to make the two hour format work will have to be that it's got to get over a lot more wrestlers as a two hour show won't be able to ride on the coattails of past reputations of performers like Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Randy Savage, Sting, and Lex Luger. They'll have to create coherent storylines and get over to the mainstream, the second rung of people like Steve Regal, David Finley, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, etc. So a lot to unpack here, as I like to say on the show, but uh, let's start from the beginning. Was this originally supposed to happen in August or September? And it got bumped up as far as you recall. No, that's just bullshit. It's just more, I mean, I've never, I don't know how many words were in what you just read to me. That was a lot. And it, it's nothing was true or made any sense. That was just Dave inside whatever head that he was living in at the time. I don't know. I don't even know how to respond to that garbage. It's just, that's what it was, man. I'm just glad I didn't pay 10 bucks a month for that kind of nonsense. Well, let me run this past you and then we'll talk about the show to show how bad TNT wanted it. It made the switch switch as quick as it could from a WCW standpoint, TNT will be increasing its weekly compensation to WCW rumored to be in the neighborhood of 2 million per year because of this. And because of the surprising profitability of running house shows this year that nobody expected going in. WCW is now a seriously profitable company for the first time in its existence. Although some book juggling may account for at least some of that statement, whether this is good for the industry as a whole or for the long term, we still don't know the long-term effect of nitro itself. So that is something of another story. Was there an increase in, in cash from TNT? I, I think on the one hand, it would be easy to say, well, no, because that would be a television rights thing. But if we're not saying 2 million a week and we're saying 2 million a year, that's not a ton of cash when it comes to producing an extra hour of live programming. Oh God, I'm fighting it. I'm fighting so hard deep down inside. I want to go off, but I know it's just, (laughs) you know, I'm going to save it. Thank you. I don't, 
if there was any increase in the budget, it would have been to offset whatever incidental increases we would have accrued in the additional hour. And they would have been minimal. Right. Because we were all, we had already traveled there. We'd already had our satellite truck there. We would have had more satellite time and that comes with an expense. Back then it was a little expensive. Um, so an extra hour of satellite time, there would have been an, an additional cost accrued for that. Um, and there might've been some others, but it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a licensing deal. It would have been to offset any incidental cost of production. And the rest of it is just, again, Dave Meltzer garbage. Let's get into the show. Uh, Lord, we've talked for over an hour and a half and we're, we're just now here, but I'm ready to do it. Uh, there's a dark match before we get going. The American males beat shark and max max is formerly known as max muscle. And, uh, Meltzer would say, although announcer, Eric Bischoff wasn't told that he'd been giving a new name with his new look. And unfortunately he had the same old working ability. So he just continued to call him his old name. Either way, it got a dud rating. Uh, but let's get into it. We've got road warrior animal in our first match here, teaming with Booker T to take on road warrior Hawk and Lex Luger. That's right. This battle bowl concept where teams are drawn at random. And now we're going to see how strange bedfellows can work together. The road warriors against each other. I kind of dig that. That's kind of cool, right? Could have been so much cooler. Right. Think of the drama that you could have created if we would have seen, you know, even if it, and I'm just riffing here, I haven't thought about this beyond what we talked about here a little while ago when we opened up the show, but imagine if before that match happened, um, we could have gone back to an earlier today segment where Gene is, you know, reaching into the hat, whatever it was, pulling out the names. And then we cut to a quick reaction of the individual talents and reacting to who they're teamed with and who they're teamed against that could have sold me that match. Yeah. We didn't see that. We, uh, we just had to take it for granted that Gene was actually, you know, pulling shit out of a hat and sending it up to Tony and, and, and the broadcast team and telling them what we're going to do. It was just it was so much potential left on the table. The match itself was, eh, if you were really curious to see what was going to happen when the road warriors were on opposite sides, you know, the ring, so to speak, it, it, it under delivered in that respect. Can I ask something, boy, I don't mean for this to be disrespectful, but I don't know another way to ask it. Don't worry about it, man. You know, we've been through this long enough. Oh, you no. can't hurt my feelings. I'm not worried about hurting your feelings. I, I want your opinion and I want you to be honest. Did you feel like. In this run, sort of the last run of the Road Warriors in WCW, was there hard in it? As a fan, it felt like they were just sort of going through the motions and it was all half-assed. It didn't feel like the Road Warriors of old. I grew up a huge Road Warrior fan, and, and I love the Legion of Doom and the WWF, but when they come back here, it's just like, oh, man, oh, God, the Road Warriors are here. This is not the same. They weren't. You know, it's funny, the other night, Right. It's funny. Right after I got home from Huntsville, 
I fell asleep. I, I started to fall asleep and I was flipping through the channels and I saw you on vice. <laughs> dark, I, dark side. But Hey, I didn't wake up in the middle of a, uh, yeah, I wasn't dreaming. I was in the show. You know, I just, I, I was, I was watching before I went to bed and you were, you were interviewing, um, Evan and Jason. Evan and I'm sorry. What's his partner's name? Producer? Jason, Jason. Jason, I'm, I always forget his name. I don't know why. Super good guy. He's Great the quiet producer, one of the duo. Evan's the talker. Yeah. And Evan's the one that I always talk to about setting up things and all that. Yeah. But I was watching you interview them and you cut to an interview that ended up on the cutting room floor with Scott Norton. Yes. An animal. And Scott was reliving, you know, some of his experiences, you know, with the road warrior, with Hawk in particular, you know, in the Tokyo Dome. And you know, Scott almost in Scott's a very, Scott's a little bit like me. He can get very emotional very easily, you know, and you know, I could see Scott was about ready to cry, yeah. you know, even reliving that story. But as Scott was describing that, all these two, I mean, I mean, Scott was so powerful and so was Hawk, but he was, when he was describing how they, you know, bounced off the ropes and came together and clotheslined each other, you know, the intensity in the way that Scott described that, you know, when I first saw, oh, we're going to see the Road Warriors together this morning, you know, reviewing the show. I was kind of anticipating some of that. Yes. Man, I didn't get any of that. I didn't get a fraction of it. And I think they were just going through the motions. Well, some of that, I do want to give context. Hawk suffered a broken foot over in Japan on April 29th. So he's here with an orthopedic shoe and can't really work, which is why he never tags in. So Luger's working the entire match. Meltzer would say it was real bad. The only good stuff was a break dance and kick by Booker T. Finally, Lex and Hawk broke up and animal and T broke up and the road warriors brawled together against their foes and were all counted out a quarter of a star. It just feels like, and I could be wrong. I wasn't there that these guys were sort of like, we're the road warriors. We don't fight against each other, but at the end we can do a schmize where neither one of us lose and we team up to beat up the other guys. And that's kind of what we got. That's exactly what you got. Exactly what you got. And, you know, for all the reasons you described with an injury, you know, it's kind of hard to work on a broken foot, but there was a lot of spots that you could have done that would have had some intensity. You know, I saw a couple of clotheslines by Hawk that were like, wow, I could have taken that one. Right. You know, (laughs) even today I could have taken that one. Um, It just, it just wasn't there. Animal didn't really have, just wasn't there, you know, for whatever reason, it, it their heart wasn't in it. And heart, maybe yeah. it was, this, you know, look, there was no backstory. There was no build. Yeah. There was no nothing. You know, how do you go out there and have a match with any kind of a, any kind of psychology and intensity and story when there's no story associated with the freaking match? There's no backstory. There's no reason to, you just go out there and, you know, get it over with. You got nine minutes, go. Let's talk about the next match. This is interesting. I kind of forgot this match ever happened. It's only four minutes and 44 seconds, but check this out. The public enemy are going to beat Chris Benoit and Kevin Sullivan. And at one point, Benoit saves Sullivan. And later when it's time for Sullivan to save Benoit, he just walks away pretending to have hurt his knee and leaving Benoit to get the public enemy sandwich through a table. (laughs) Then he's pinned by Rocco Meltzer says a little sloppy, but overall not bad. This was good storytelling. We're, we're sort of, uh, feeding into this Benoit, Kevin Sullivan thing. And we're making it happen in the middle of a a pay-per-view where 
it probably wouldn't normally happen. I don't know. I dug this piece. I thought this was well done. Even if it was maybe a little short, I thought the match was beyond sloppy in some spots. It was actually embarrassing in some spots, but I will say, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, my feelings about this pay-per-view and its purpose, you know, in May of 1996 was to advance other stories with certain key people. This is a perfect example of what I was talking about. Was the match a great match? Yeah, it was all right. You know, um, was it sloppy? Yeah, for the most part, there was a lot of slop in this match. Public Enemy looked great, by the way. Benoit always looks good, but there was just, yeah, it was just, nah. But it did help to advance, you know, probably middle of act one, the Benoit Sullivan story. So in that respect, it served its purpose. Was it the most entertaining match on the card? Absolutely fucking not. But did it serve a purpose? Yes. Yeah. Check that box. Okay. So we talked about the first big match here on the show was road warrior versus road warrior. Now it's time for Steiner versus Steiner. And I was kind of jacked about this in theory. And then I learned the tag partners are booty man and Craig Pittman. So it's Rick Steiner and booty man. God damn it. And Craig Pittman and Scott Steiner, they go eight minutes and 21 seconds. Rick pins Pittman with a German suplex. Meltzer would say at least Rick and Scott worked against each other for a few minutes, getting lots of heat and trading big suplexes. The fans booed when they tagged booty in. And so did I, uh, two and a quarter stars. I love the idea of Steiner versus Steiner to your point. It would have been much better. Had we had more build for it. Maybe there was some anticipation and surprise in the drawing aspect, or maybe there was just a promo and we just got a soundbite from each. We didn't get any of that, but we did get some cool brother versus brother action, but goddamn booty man and Craig Pittman, this not my favorite. If we could fantasy book this for a minute, how cool would it have been if it was Rick and a road warrior versus Scott and a road warrior or Rick and sting against Luger and Scott or whatever. But instead, their dance partners are Booty Man and Craig Pittman. I don't even know what to say. I, I, I cringe. You know, when I saw. First of all, I cringe anytime I see Booty Man or Brutus the Barber Beefcake <laughs> or whatever. I, uh, but he did look good in those, you know, Ultimate Warrior derivative armbands, didn't he? Yeah, he, he, he looked awesome. But and actually, I'll, I got to give credit where credit is due. Here, as much as I've never liked the Brutus the Barber beefcake or any derivatives thereof, he actually worked harder in this match than I think I can recall, recall seeing him work for a long time. He, he actually tried. He doesn't have the talent or the conditioning or the timing or the talent, <laughs> but he tried. Yeah. He, he did try. He did work hard. And I saw more out of him than I think I've seen out of him in the three years that we've been covering various Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake, you know, booty man derivatives over the last three years. He worked harder than any time I've seen him in a long time, but it's so, it was kind of, it was bad. 
Boy, talk about oil and water. Yeah. I mean, Man, it, it's like flash. ordering, it's like ordering a great steak. What's the name of that steakhouse in Huntsville that I like going to in the mall? Your mom goes there. Oh, wait a minute. That's, you don't really like that. Do you? What's the name of it? Oh, wait, wait. Okay. I know what you're talking about. It, it's, it's part of the chop house brand. Uh, but, but this one in particular is Connor Steakhouse and it's at Connor Steakhouse. That's yeah. it. That's, That's it. Like they have really good food there. Yeah. And it's like going to Connor Steakhouse in Huntsville and ordering, you know, the best steak on the menu and then pouring maple syrup on it. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I got nothing against maple syrup and I certainly have nothing against a great steak, but you don't mix those two. Right. That's a, what the fuck moment. Right. Nobody does that. And that's kind of the same way I felt when I saw booty man, which is like cheap maple syrup getting poured all over a great steak, yeah. which would be Rick Steiner. It's just like, nah, you don't do, don't ever do that. Just don't. Let's talk about the next match. This is, uh, boy, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times in WCW. We got VK wall street teaming with hacksaw, Jim Duggan to take on Steve Regal and Dave Taylor. They go three minutes and 46 seconds when Duggan taped his fist and punched Taylor. Meltzer would say Duggan was more over than just about anyone on the show because Baton Rouge was his old stomping ground, literally going back 10 years. The sad part is it showed the only guys that were over on the show were for eight to 10 years ago, which shows just how effective the WCW announcers have been at creating stars. Duggan was just awful. He gave it a dud rating. You know, you got to, uh, you got very capable performers in this match, but it's just a miss. I mean, the idea that Steve Regal gets a dud rating, that's almost unbelievable, but it happened. Steve Regal look, Steve, to be fair, and I have nothing but the utmost respect for Steve. And I think if Steve was sitting here right next to me and we we're doing the show, the three of us, I think Steve would admit that this is not his finest hour, Yeah. nor was he in the best condition of his life, nor was he executing the best, you know, in-ring performances of his career. This was an embarrassment, I'm sure, for Steve Regal. Uh, this was not a great time for Steve. Steve had some challenges at this point and it re- was reflected here. So yeah, you know, Meltzer, you know, he is what he is. He can't help himself. He's just, it is what it is. He hasn't changed. He never will. He's not capable of it, but th- yeah, this match blew and not just because of Duggan, you know, it, 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 it and look, oh, let me finish the thought. This match sucked for a lot of reasons not simply because of Duggan and, and Meltzer's opinion of Duggan. There was nothing good about this match, and there were no performances from anybody. Wall Street did a good job. Wall Street tried to pick up the slack, um, and he looked pretty crisp and sharp. But he wasn't an over-character at that point. He wasn't somebody that people were really excited to see at that point. He was an instrumental part of the show. He had an important you know, spot from time to time, but he wasn't one of the big names you know, on the show. It was just an eh match and Steve Regal didn't do anything to make it any better. Neither did Dave Taylor. So I understand, you know, not that I understand it, but I well aware of Dave's bizarre perspective on things. Wasn't he the guy that said bad bunny was not over and nobody knew who he was. Okay. Next up, we've got Dick Slater teaming with Bobby <laughs> Eaton to take on Disco Thank Inferno you. and Alex Wright. They go two minutes and 56 seconds. Let me recap who's in this match one more time. 
dirty Dick Slater, Bobby Eaton, Huntsville's own disco inferno and Alex Wright. Uh, the finish comes when Slater hit disco with his cowboy boot as disco was dancing and then pinned him. No heat at all. Disco looked bad. Trying to work as a face negative quarter star. Again, you and I have talked about what a great in-ring wrestler Alex Wright was and what maybe a missed opportunity he was in hindsight. Disco Inferno got over a gimmick that not many people could. Very entertaining dude. Dick Slater certainly has his own reputation. We don't have to say any more. Bob Eaton, one of the most underrated performers of all time. But boy, this is just one of those examples where if you just mix it all up and stir it up and maybe pull it out of the oven too soon. It's not very good. 256 negative quarter star. This is becoming a trend here on this pay-per-view. There's very little good so far. Yeah. If, if, if there's anybody, you know, listening to the show or watching us on amfreeshows.com that, you know, aspires to be a, a writer or producer. And if somehow you don't think enough about how important chemistry is, yeah. go back to Peacock TV and watch this match and you'll walk away knowing just how valuable chemistry or lack thereof can be. Next up, more of the same. Uh, what a weird show this is in hindsight. Diamond Dallas Page and Barbarian are going to beat Ming and Hugh Morris. They get five minutes and 15 seconds. Barb pins Morris after a big boot to the face. Meltzer would say at the same time, Ming had Page pinned, but the announcers didn't count since Page had his foot under the ropes. Uh, it also didn't count because neither were the legal men in the ring. Better than you'd think, particularly because Ming versus Barbarian was pretty stiff. Star and a half. Let's just keep rolling to the next one. We got Scott Norton and Ice Train taking on Big Bubba and Stevie Ray in three minutes and 32 seconds. Norton and Ice Train get the win uh, when Bubba and Ray collided and Norton and Train gave Bubba a double shoulder block and pinned him. Meltzer would say Ray looked especially bad, but what else is new? Norton didn't look good either. Minus a quarter star. So, so far, let's recap our match ratings. And I know you don't put any credence to any of this, but. The first match with the road warriors gets a quarter star, the public enemy and, uh, the, the whole Chris Benoit, uh, Kevin Sullivan thing gets a star in three quarters, the booty man and the Steiner brothers get two and a quarter stars. The Duggan match was a dud. The Bobby Eaton match is negative quarter star. Uh, the DDP and barbarian thing is a star and a half. And the Scott Norton, the nice train is a negative quarter star. We're on our way to see one of. Maybe the worst WCW pay-per-views ever so far. According to who? According to Dave. Oh, you liked it. My bad. No, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. But I also don't I don't pay attention to Dave or Dave Meltzer's star ratings. I just think they're silly. I'm not because they're, they're because they're very subjective. And look, I I, agree, I guess you know in a way I agree with Dave. Right. Um. In in, in a different way, I you know I'm I'm disagreeing with it or or agreeing with him. I guess for for different reasons, but it was a bad show. There was you know you don't have to be a fucking wrestling expert in your basement you know writing about wrestling to recognize a bad show when you see one. Thank God, um, this was a bad show. I'm not trying to defend it at all. But Hey, here's two good matches. Let's talk about them. Flair and Randy Savage on one side are going to be Eddie Guerrero and Arn Anderson on the other. 
So now let's talk about this. You've got the horsemen split apart. Rick on one side, Arn on the other. Let me run through the list again. Rick Flair, Randy Savage, Arn Anderson, and Eddie Guerrero. This is a big opportunity for Guerrero here. I mean, no matter how you slice it, he's going to be wrestling Randy Savage and Ric Flair. And this is early 1996. This is before Eddie Guerrero was in that upper echelon of conversation as far as American television wrestling to being a quote unquote top guy. Certainly he could, he could be cruiserweight champ or TV champ or us champ, but we're still, I don't know, years away from Eddie being considered world championship caliber, but he's wrestling Randy Savage and Ric Flair who are on a lot of people's Mount Rushmore's. This is a big opportunity for Eddie, right? It was, and Eddie took advantage of it, man. I think Eddie looked good in this match and I love, you know, this match had backstory. Yes. This, this match had a reason to exist. Whereas all of the other matches, other than, you know, the curiosity factor didn't, and there was no backstory and there was no psychology in the match. And there was no reason for those matches to happen other than, you know, the sheer random nature of them, which clearly didn't work out too well for a lot of reasons. Um, but this match did make sense. It did have backstory. It was going forward. This was a probably end of act one, early act two story in, in, in Ric Flair's saga at that point and his relationship to Arn Anderson. This match had the potential of seeing Arn, you know, being involved in defeating Rick. Didn't work out that way. It worked out the opposite. It was really good storytelling. And the match itself was really fun to watch. I enjoyed this one. Let's break down the match here. Meltzer would say Flair and Anderson worked together much of the way, beating on Savage. Guerrero saved Savage from Flair, and Flair and Guerrero started working together, which got great heat. As Guerrero took over on Flair, Savage recovered and attacked Flair. Anderson then DDT'd his own partner and posted Savage, and Flair pinned Guerrero. Flair and Anderson held Savage, and Elizabeth slapped him in the face. Anderson then DDT'd Savage on the floor, and Flair stomped him. This is big on heat, three and a quarter stars. It's a little silly thing, but if you're a longtime wrestling fan, you love the idea that Flair and Arn are holding Savage so Liz can slap him. This was good stuff, and at this point, the best thing on the show. Was it the best thing on the show so far? Yeah, I think it, it, it had to be at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love the Steiner interaction, but as far as the overall match, I think this was better just because Booty Man was at this winner. point. Yes. I, yes. Actually, my, my favorite match is going to take place shortly on, on this card. Oh, I know but... what you like. I can guess. Well, okay, guess. Come on. Humor me. I, I think you're into the Brad Armstrong deal. I like that one a lot, but that wasn't my favorite. My favorite was Conan and Liger. Oh, wow. Okay. Let's keep it rolling here. Let's talk about um, the, the, the ad that we've got for the Great American uh, Bash pay-per-view. Uh, that's going to be coming your way on June 16th. We know that's when uh, Eric Bischoff's going to go for a ride. Uh, they have a brief clip in the commercial for Hogan, which Meltzer would say is highly misleading since he's not on the card. Uh, but either way, next up, we've got Dean Malenko and Brad Armstrong. The WCW Cruiserweight title is on the line. And I don't think we saw Brad Armstrong much on pay-per-view. We certainly didn't get many title shots with him, but you and I are both suckers for Brad Armstrong. And we both think the world of Dean Malenko, this was pretty good. Two and a uh, half stars, but Meltzer is critical of it saying there's no heat at all. He says, obviously, technically it was good. Fans treated the match as if it were intermission. 
and they've already killed the cruiserweight title by putting over the idea of Armstrong being a contender for the belt. Malenko won using a stomach block while standing on the middle rope at eight minutes and 29 seconds. I, I love the idea that Brad has an opportunity here. Meltzer was critical of it, saying it maybe hurt the credibility of the belt. What say you? I, I don't see it that way. I, I, I'm not sure why Dave would, uh, can't get into his head, nor do I want to. I, I look, the match didn't have any heat to it because it didn't have any fucking story to it. But to suggest that Brad Armstrong hurt the credibility of the cruiserweight division, that's some serious, serious douchebag level commentary. That's, and I, I don't get it. I don't even, I don't even know how else to respond to it. I want to mention real fast, um, since the, the opening match with the road warriors was a double count out, they did a fake drawing and announced that Norton and ice train would get a second round by, and they're automatically in the battle Royal. So round two starts and now it's Slater and Eaton beating Duggan and wall street in four minutes and eight seconds. And Meltzer would say worst match on the show minus one star. And uh, then the public enemy was awarded a forfeit win over flair and savage when security had to keep the two of them apart before they could even make it to the ring. That kind of sucks. I mean, the idea that you've got two of your biggest stars on the whole thing, flair and savage, I I love the match and I thought the story was great, but the idea that they're not going to have a round two, it makes me think maybe what we just saw in round one should have happened in round two. Am I overthinking that? No, not at all. It would have built, right? Yes. It would have been a better build. It would have been a better climactic moment. It would have just made more sense. You know, the story would have progressed in a way that was kind of logical that people could have got into. I understand why they did it the way they did it. I don't think it was a smart move, but I understand it. Again, it was it was an attempt to build the heat and to establish just how much these two hate each other. But you're absolutely right, Conrad, if that would have been, that story would have played out in reverse. It would have been much better for everybody, including them and the audience, because it would have made sense. Instead, what you did is you built anticipation for what's going to happen, and it didn't happen. Right. So you've actually killed the most valuable aspect of your storytelling arsenal. You just blew it up and in a very unsatisfying way for the audience. Next up, we've got uh, Paige and Barbarian beating the Booty Man and Rick Steiner when Barbarian pinned Booty after Paige dropped an elbow on him, half a star. And then your match of the night, Conan retains the U.S. title, pinning Jushin Thunder Liger in nine minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, Liger came out with Sonny Ono here. Meltzer would say Mike Tanay got to announce this match, and he pretty much did more to get new guys over than all the other announcers in the company have done with the new wrestlers in the last six months combined. Liger hit a plancha when Conan went after Ono. Good mat work early, followed by all kinds of big moves and near falls. After Liger came off the top, Conan got his foot up. Conan then put him away with a splash mountain, which he called a power drop. Very good match, easily the best on the show. And it wasn't even all Liger's doing. Three and a half stars. Conan had his working boots on here, didn't he? I think that's why I like this match so much because we, you know, you watch guys as they get older in their career and you kind of remember them, how they 
ended their careers. Yes. And you, sometimes I'll, I'll speak for myself. I forget sometimes how good certain people were when they were at their peak. And this was a great look at Conan when Conan was on his game. So I, I, and I did Conan, you know, we're pretty good friends. So it was fun to see Conan at, he might not have been at the peak of his career, but he's probably damn close. He looked awesome. His timing was great. He was agile. He was crisp. Um, there was good psychology in the match, which makes it even more interesting to me because now, you know, Conan's in there working with a guy, you know, in, in Dushin Thunder Liger, who's, you know, not the most fluent in Spanish or English. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, it takes a while. It's hard. And this is not a guy that Conan probably worked with very often. Right. So when you see, you know, someone like Conan, who's, you know, Hispanic, you know, and, and, and working with a guy like Liger from Japan, who they haven't worked a bunch before. They have, this is not like the eighth time they've ever worked together. Right. So it, it's, it's really, it's, it makes the match stand out to me because it represents just how good um, wrestling could be even in the most odd of pairings, but I, and obviously Liger's Liger, you know, he's always fun to watch, but I was really, really impressed with Conan here. I loved his timing. I, I just loved everything about him in this match. It was really refreshing, which is probably why it was my favorite match on the card. Let's keep it rolling here and mention that flair Anderson woman and Liz all come out for an interview and Steve McMichael comes out and flair issues the challenge to him and a partner Meltzer would say flair was incredible, but the idea of Kevin green being the mystery partner didn't get over. Well, first, everyone knew it since it's been in the news and they've even talked about it on nitro second during the main event show Bischoff said that Michael McMichael and green would both be on the pay-per-view McMichael has a tremendous presence and if he can learn to work a little bit. He can be a big star in pro wrestling, although long-term he needs to be a heel. The segment lost a lot when green showed up. Of course, we tragically just lost Kevin green and, and what a great time we had with him in WCW. I had the pleasure of meeting him once randomly in 1997 at a cracker barrel of all places. I was wearing an NWO shirt and he hammed it up with a, I don't know, 16 year old Conrad. It was fucking awesome. Uh, just a good dude by all accounts. Uh, I knew people you know, in the Auburn family who were really good friends with him. And, uh, I can't believe that we lost him so young, but Steve McMichael here getting high praise from Dave Meltzer. Well, I didn't see that coming, but he's right. He did have incredible presence. What'd you think of this interview segment? It was messy. <clears throat> I think with, with Kevin, less could have been more. Kevin was trying too hard, you know, or it's also called overacting. Yeah. Um, he was, he just pushed it a little too hard. I thought it was shot poorly. It was lit poorly and that's, you know, production stuff, but all those things add up. I think if it would have been shot differently, if it wouldn't have been so cluttered, I think if the focus would have been um, a little tighter, I don't mean the focus of the camera, but the focus of the interview would have been a little tighter. And if Kevin would have come in at the last minute, you know, at the last few moments of that promo, instead of standing with his back half turned to the camera, during so much of it, um, where we couldn't really see his face. We got a kind of a one-third profile shot. There was just so many things technically wrong with the interview and the way it was set up that it had no chance of being good. Um, but I think if, you know, if we would have 
maybe been a little more cognizant of the less is more strategy with, you know, people that aren't used to being out there in this type of presentation, it would have come off better. Had the potential, but it was just a cluttered fucking mess. All right. We're, uh, we're rounding third base here. Page wins the eight man battle Royal. Meltzer would say the first six minutes were among the worst battle Royals I've ever seen. No heat and nobody except page had any idea what they were doing. Once it came down to page and barbarian, the final three minutes and 30 seconds was very good with big moves and near falls going back and forth until page got the pin with the diamond cutter. Even though the finish was strong, there was no crowd reaction because nobody cares about these guys. Even with all the TV time devoted to pages, angles, a star and a half. Let's take a timeout right now, because we've talked about how DDP gets started late wrestling. So he's I uh, I don't know, mid thirties. And a lot of people think that he's, um, too late to the dance, shall we say, but he is desperate to make it in wrestling. He's filming all of his matches. He's watching all that tape back. He's seeking the counsel of guys like Jake Roberts and dusty Rhodes. Uh, he's working at the power plant, working his ass off, but he is perhaps, as you said about Kevin green, trying too hard. He's got, uh, I mean, he is a walking, talking gimmick. There was a time where he was sporting a toothpick in his mouth and smoking a cigar and chewing gum. I'm not making that up all at the same time. Uh, so he's trying literally anything and everything to connect with the audience, but it doesn't look like it's working. Now we know in 97, he's going to catch fire. And he's going to work with Randy Savage and have arguably the feud of the year. And he's off to the races. Just a few years after this, he'll be top of the mountain. He'll be world champion less than three years from this show. In fact, but here at this point, it felt like we've invested a lot of time, effort, and energy, and the fans just don't give a shit, but we're, we're giving him a nod, at least from the office standpoint, he's winning battle bowl. So even if we don't love the concept, we promoted it. It's on pay-per-view. He's got a ring. Now it means something, but Scott Hall had said that you sort of went the other way. And instead of pushing guys, you were friends with, it made it even harder for them to get over. Was this a dusty roads vote of confidence here in diamond Dallas page at slamboree 96. I think collectively we all felt like you know, Paige was heading in the right direction from an in-ring perspective. <clears throat> I still hated his gimmick. There were still a lot of things about Paige, even though he was, you know, one of my closest friends at the time. There was a lot of things about his presentation that just really, really got under my skin. But I hadn't come up with a solution for it yet, and neither had he. Um, but we all recognized that this guy, you know, you know, he started working the diamond cutter. His in-ring performance was was getting better and better and better. His psychology, <clears throat> for the most part, was really, really improving. There was a lot of things that were working. He just wasn't over because the, the audience didn't relate to him. They couldn't connect with him. His character didn't resonate with the people that were really interested. And th- that would change. And I think there, again, is a perfect example here, you know, to go back and kind of study and, and try to look for things that we see today that maybe are in, in some ways very similar. Um, and I don't have an example, by the way, but I'm sure there are out there if we think about it hard enough. 
But here's a guy who was putting all of the pieces together. Yes, he got a late late start in life. And yes, he was, you know, he was working hard, like 24-7 working hard, not just in the ring and trying to get in shape, but in studying and, and listening and watching tape. All those things added up. And we're seeing the evolution of this guy who was kind of awkward and a little bit uncoordinated in the very beginning and not very believable to now becoming someone who could hang and bang with guys that were much more seasoned with him and do so and maintain credibility as a character and a performer, not not as a character, as a performer uh, physically from an execution perspective, he could go with just about anybody at this point, but the character still wasn't there. Yeah. And this is, this is the point where now we're going, okay, he's got, we've checked every box, but the character box in that kaleidoscope of gimmicks, that dollar store blue light special Mm. of gimmick collections that he came to the ring with was actually holding him back. And it took a while to get Paige to lose that because he, because Paige, I didn't say he imitated, but he, he, he took so much. He took a lot from Dusty Rhodes in the way he cut his promos early on. If you go back and listen to early Diamond Dallas Page interviews, go back to when he was even managing Bad Company in the AWA. You know, Paul Diamond, Pat Tanaka. He was Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, right. And then he was a little bit of Jake Roberts, and then he was a little bit of Jesse the Body Ventura, and then he was a little of this, and he was a little of that. And it it wasn't until he started coming together as a as a performer physically and from an execution point of view, did we start looking at him and going, okay, he's got this, he's got this, he's got that. Oh, we got to get rid of these gimmicks. Once that happened, boom, he was over in a big way, but it's, it takes a while. It took a while to work all that stuff out. It took a while. As I said so many times and, Every interview I've ever done, when people talk about you know certain people in the industry and where they're at today, especially younger talent. And in this case, Paige wasn't a younger talent. He was probably 38 or 40 at this point in his life. This was 96. So I would have been 41. Yeah, he was about 40 years old at this point. Um, he was by no means a young talent, but he was a young performer. He'd only really been performing for a very short period of time. It takes five, six, seven, eight years, sometimes longer before a performer learns the craft from an execution perspective and then really begins to learn the craft from a psychology perspective. And then finally, and this usually comes at the end of the evolution, figures out who they are as a character and how to relate to the audience. And this was Paige on probably... You know, if it was a if it was a ten part journey, at this point, Paige was probably at stage seven, and he was about to finish it off. But it's interesting to go back and watch him. Let's finish up with a world title shot. Uh, this is going to be a very highly rated, three and a quarter stars, same as that Iron uh, Flair Eddie thing from earlier, uh, and just barely behind the Liger Conan. But this is for the world title, and Giant is going to retain by beating Sting. In 10 minutes and 41 seconds, Meltzer really dug it. He said this had great crowd heat and excellent psychology. Check this out. At one point, Giant went to chokeslam Sting through a table, but Luger put Jimmy Hart, who he was handcuffed to, on the table, and Giant had to let Sting go. 
At another point, Luger pulled Sting out of the way when Giant went for a drop kick. And uh, Meltzer says, When was the last time you saw a six foot 10 guy do that? That referee Randy Anderson takes a bump and Sting makes a comeback. And as Giant goes after Luger, Sting hits him with three Stinger splashes, but Giant doesn't really register it at all. Sting uses a splash off the top, but Giant kicks out and Sting lands on the ref again. Sting does a second splash off the top, but put Giant in the Scorpion. Uh, Jimmy tried to interfere, but Luger grabbed the megaphone. And as they're fighting over the megaphone, it accidentally hit Sting in the head. And Giant got up and chokeslammed him for the pin. Good storyline and better action than you'd have any right to expect, given Giant's level of experience. And that Sting has never been known to carry people well, three and a quarter stars. Just to give context to this, the prior Halloween Havoc. So the prior October is when the Giant debuted in his first match for WCW, Halloween Havoc. And here he is just a handful of months later, carrying a pay per view main event with Sting for the world title. This was pretty solid when you have all that context. And I thought the psychology was, was pretty nice too. What'd you think? I loved every bit of it. And it certainly is a testament to how hard Paul white worked yep. and how much natural talent Paul white had. Um, he was very eager at this point. He was an open book. He listened, he tried to learn and he did a great job. I mean, he's a phenomenal athlete. If you think watching him do a, you know, a six foot 10 guy doing a drop kick is impressive. You should see him do a, a kip up, which is something that generally only gymnasts can do little little fuckers, you know, that weigh about 140 pounds. They can do kip-ups pretty well. You get a guy that weighs whatever he weighed at the time, 450 pounds, six foot ten, be able to do a kip-up, a legitimate kip-up, um, was mind-boggling. And what's interesting about this is Giant actually got a little heat backstage, you know, for doing that drop kick. Really? There was a lot of people that was like, what? Why you're killing your giant gimmick. You're doing, giant. Shit that, yeah. you're doing stuff that Eddie Guerrero does, you know, or guys that are 220 pounds do you're a giant work like a giant giants. Don't drop kick. That was a big conversation backstage. And I was kind of stuck in the middle of it. I saw it, you know, traditionally, yes, that would be right. You know, you want to see a big giant, be a big giant, you know, don't go down. You know, the first time you go down, make somebody earn it, build up to it over weeks or months or years. Don't go off your feet, you know, uh, and by all means, don't fucking do a drop kick, you know, <laughs> or a kip up, even though you can don't do it. Cause it'll kill your gimmick. There was a lot of that conversation backstage. Let's talk about the show overall. Uh, the readers of the observer gave it. 4.8% thumbs up, 83.7% thumbs down, 11.5% thumbs in the middle. Uh, they they mostly agreed with you. Uh, it's nearly unanimous. Conan and Jushin Liger win the best match poll. The Battle Royal wins the worst match poll. I feel like you probably agree with the Raiders of the Observer. Thumbs down, but you liked Conan and Liger? Yeah, this was, it was hard to watch. I, I, I did like the, the Liger Conan match. And I, you know, I did like the, the, the flair savage Arn you know, story. I liked that. I did get off on that a little bit. Um, I didn't get off on it, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the rest of it was really, really difficult to watch painful. 
Well, boys and girls, that's going to do it for us this week. We hope you've enjoyed Slamboree 1996. It's interesting to take a look at this time capsule of what was going on with WCW right before everything changed. Of course, we're going to break all of that down next month as we approach the 25 year anniversary of uh, the NWO. But last week we had planned to do lockdown 2011, uh, but that was a particular challenge because of WrestleMania weekend and Eric going into the hall of fame and Eric, you and I still need to set aside some time and just talk about your WrestleMania and hall of fame experience. Maybe we can do that one day soon here on ad free shows, uh, but lockdown 2011, that's what's next. And I know that you're going to have a freaking aneurysm and an entire card of cage matches. I promise I won't make you record it at 6 a.m. You know, I know you didn't do this on purpose, but to drag me through this slambery and then <laughs> follow it up, because usually you're pretty good. It's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to drag him through, you know, broken glass. You know, I'm going to roll him in rock salt after I'm done. And then I'm going to kick him to the curb, but we're going to do this show. And then the following week, you give me something to get excited about. This week, it's like you're dragging me through broken glass, broken glass, you know, and then you're going to make me walk through the desert. It's like, Sorry. oh, my God. Sorry. But I'll, I'll be there for you and for this audience. I'll take my lumps for the team because that's the kind of guy I am. And we'll get through that and we'll start talking about some fun shit. I'm looking forward to it, boys and girls. If you haven't already, check us out on adfreeshows.com. And, uh, Eric, I didn't get your take on it. We haven't really spoken about it, but Jeff Jarrett is the latest to add to our little, uh, ad free show stable. If you will, he's got a new podcast starting here on Westwood one. Uh, it'll be Tuesday starting May 4th and from his days of growing up in the business and then his actual in ring years, and then all the behind the scenes stuff of starting his own company and being a promoter, a promoter for TNA and impact. He has a story like nobody else. Would you agree? He's had an incredible life in an amazing business from the time he was such a young person and he's a great storyteller. Jeff is a great storyteller. And I think, you know, at this stage in, in Jeff's life, he's going to have a great time and an entertaining time. We're going to learn. I'm sure I'm going to learn things that I never knew about Jeff and the way he came up and, you know, his perspective on the industry at different stages of his career. I'm sure we're going to hear Jeff's side of the story on some really important topics that we, I've not heard, at least. So I personally am really looking forward to this. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to start doing live shows again down the road and Jeff will be a part of that. I think Jeff, Jeff's going to be telling some amazing stories and I think everybody's in for a treat, including me, you, and everybody that's listening. If you haven't already, check it out. It's happening early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. until next week. He is at E Bischoff on Twitter. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. Follow us on at 83 weeks on Twitter and tune in next week where I beat Eric up about lockdown 2011. It's an entire card filled with cage matches. I can hear Eric groaning in the distance. Ugh. See you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. I love you to the moon and back. Sounds familiar. Doesn't it? Who does it remind you of? What do you think mom would say? If you said that to her, how about your wife? They might melt a little, right? Make sure she remembers how much she is loved every day 
with Steven Singer's exclusive moon and back diamond necklace for just $98. It features a moon and a heart with a secret message of love. I love you to the moon and back. Imagine the look on her face when she reads that hidden message on the back of the necklace. It's the perfect warm and fuzzy gift for your mom or the mother of your children this mother's day. Great jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Buy real diamonds from a real jeweler. You can trust. Take my advice and head to Steven singer jewelers. It's easy. Go now to, I hate and check out Steven's beautiful selection of mother's day gifts all at the perfect price with fast and free shipping. Steven's real experts are available to help online by phone or in his showroom at the other corner of eighth and Walnut and Philly. That's I hate Steven singer.com. What if you could pay off all your credit card debt, a home equity line of credit and knock eight years off of your loan. It sounds too good to be true, but save with Conrad can do it for you. Seriously, that's an actual story from someone who listens to this podcast just like you. If you have a home equity line of credit, if you're in a 30-year loan, or you've got credit card debt, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much. Just ask Selby in North Carolina. We hooked them up. They left us a five-star review and had this to say, Jimmy and Jennifer were great to work with. We knocked eight years off our mortgage and paid off our home equity loan and credit cards. Would recommend them to everyone. And right now, we can help more families than ever before. We're licensed in more than 40 states. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. Seriously, the worst case scenario is you spend 10 minutes and we give you the peace of mind that you've got the best deal for your family. That's what my family wants to do for you right now over at SaveWithConrad.com. But what if we could knock eight years off your loan? Think about that. You know to the penny what your house payment is. Now multiply it by 12 payments a year times eight years. That's our gargantuan sum of money. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. That's SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Find out how you can do it right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.